Hello, and welcome back to Failure Peace Theater. I am your amiable co-host, Tim, and joining me as always is... Catherine. And we have returned from the wild hunt to talk about perhaps one of the biggest box office bombs in recent Hollywood history, a nefarious case of studio meddling with creative process. You meddling studios. Yo, studio. Oh, we would have gotten away with it if it weren't for you. Exactly. <laughs> we would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for you, stupid meddling studios. Um, yeah, we're going to talk about Hellboy 2019. Um, the the recent Hellboy reboot, question mark? With, uh, David Harbour as the titular hellish boy. Um, Thomas Hayden Church as Lobster Johnson, perhaps one of my favorite comic book characters of all time. I have the the 2002 NECA action figure on my shelf right over there. Um, love that character. Love Hellboy, uh, which is, is where I really want to start. Before we get into Hellboy 2019, let's just talk about something good. And that is our love of Hellboy. Hellboy. Generally. Right. Hellboy generally so like on the wikipedia page hellboy franchise yeah um hellboy is my favorite comic book um man it ranks up there high with me i was a 90s marvel kid so there's a few of those that have kind of wormed their way into my brain but but hellboy for that 90s marvel kid was a revelation like just straight mind-blowingly incredible um, I had seen Mike Mignola's artwork. Mignola came out of the Marvel and DC system as most of the artists of the nineties did. Um, he had it'd been relegated to cover art for a while. Like he hadn't really done a panel book for quite a few years, but most famously he was tasked with doing all of the custom covers for the DC Elseworlds line, which mm. of course that brand, the Elseworlds brand has come roaring back into the public consciousness since James Gunn has said that any film that doesn't align with the sort of future DC universe moving forward, you know, your, your Todd Phillips, Jokers, your uh, Matt Reeves, Batman's, etc., will all be branded with the Elseworlds label. Um, but I was a huge Elseworlds fan in the early and mid nineties. I bought every issue of Elseworlds that I could find. I thought those stories were great. Um, and Manuela was, did most of the covers, you know, so I was, I was a huge fan from that. I was an early 2000s edgy goth girl, so mm. Hellboy just appealed to everything. Right up that alley, yeah. I, I mean, it everything about it worked for me, because of course, I mean, I grew up with <clears throat> your comic books just around, mm -hmm. Um. so I, I love, I love Manuela's art, I just think it's, it's beautiful, I love Especially Hellboy, just it's so painterly and kind of muted. Yeah. And it's it's just beautiful. It's so moody. And that that touched my heart and and I was sort of obsessed. And then it wasn't long before the first Hellboy movie came out. I think I was <clears throat> seventeen when that movie came out, maybe sixteen. Yeah, it was mid two thousands. Um I think it was two thousand four. That sounds right. Um, so that was that was really formative for me in comic book movies. Right. I mean, you know, Del Toro. Uh, yeah, original Hellboy was 04. 
you know, and that was Guillermo del Toro coming off of, you know, he had done mimic his U S film and you know, that was, that just, it was what it was. The film itself is fine. It was another studio meddling disaster. Very famously Harvey Weinstein meddled in that film sort of drove del Toro off of it, turned it into what the final product was. Um, but then he made blade two, which, you know, hey. even though I don't, I don't love blade two. Um, if you want to, what's not it, to love, <laughs> if you want to watch an unofficial sequel to blade two, just watch the strain that show he did with uh, Chuck Hogan, because you could basically tell that for, for Guillermo del Toro, a vampire does a particular thing. And then he just sort of runs with that idea in the strain. If, if there was dudes and well, to be honest, there actually is a dude with a sword and a black trench coat in the street <laughs> who is a vampire that could be out during the day. So I'm just going to leave that on the table. Uh, if you just replace that character with blade, it's like blade three. Um, but he had made blade two blade two is a huge success. Um, and then he used a bit of that cachet to adapt at that time. I mean, he was popular. Like Hellboy hit hit hard, but in, it hit hard with a certain group of people. Right. It was not like mainstream success material, and Del Toro took it and and basically turned it into mainstream success material. But very early in its life, I mean, pretty famously, Mignola didn't have time. He was so involved in the films at Del Toro's behest that he didn't actually make Hellboy comics for like five years because yeah. he was just working on that stuff. And, um, you know, so when he came back in like, Oh seven, Oh eight and started working again, he didn't really feel like he could do the art. So he brought in Duncan Figredo, a great British artist to do, um, a lot of the, the book interiors and he just took over covers and concept and stuff. But, but Hellboy was, you know, for in a lot of ways, probably one of the earliest independent comic success stories. I mean, we have Spawn, you know, Spawn got his movie in the mid nineties, <laughs> um, which yeah. you know, was probably best forgotten at this point. Yeah. But, you know, there were people, you know, in, in the absence of great movies coming out from like DC and Marvel, which at that time there really weren't many, it was spooling up. I mean, they'd had the Spider-Man success. So every studio was kind of looking for their Spider-Man. So, I mean, it kind of makes sense that you would rove to the far corners of the comic book industry to see if you could pull something out that would hit like that. But comic book movies still had not hit their stride. No, no, we're still, we're, you know, when the original Hellboy movie came out, we were still four years away from Iron Man, which is generally seen as the, you know, it's the beginning of the MCU, but it was also really a very successful and very well-regarded superhero film, which not many of them got both of those. You got well-regarded, or you got financially successful. You didn't get both of them uh, yeah. at the same time. So, so that was a, you know, a long time coming, but you know, we're not here to talk about the del Toro Hellboy films. Unfortunately, um, they're flawed. I, I don't love, uh, and again, we've talked about it. I don't love Hellboy Two. Some of the choices that del Toro makes are fine. I mean, del, I'll just say this. Basically Hellboy Two feels more like a Guillermo del Toro story and movie then it feels like a Hellboy movie. That's um, fair. And, and not to its detriment, but if you look at the type of stuff that Guillermo del Toro makes, Hellboy 2 fits with that. Like, I, Hellboy 2 is like a pseudo prequel to Pan's Labyrinth, right, or something. It's, it's <laughs> not. But, like, if you look at the little fairies and the sort of love of nature, like, the things, the, the themes that get Guillermo del Toro moving 
Hellboy 2 is infused with a lot more of that. And and to be fair, if there, I mean, of any filmmaker, Del Toro is the one who had the right visual style to represent Mignola's artwork and like the, the mood yes. of those comics. Yeah, again, nothing I'm saying about Hellboy 2 is detrimental or or should be but interpreted as me great. saying that it's bad. <laughs> but it was not, I wanted to continue... And we're going to talk about that with this movie. Hellboy's lore, as it is, in, in, in the run of comics that focus on Hellboy, and then to a smaller extent, the BPRD adventures that take place after that, the lore of Hellboy is pretty fully explored, more than I ever expected Mignola to explore it, honestly. And and not all of that is banger stuff either. Like, there's some, like, really? Like, we're going that direction with it, man? But, I mean, it's... it's But it's very cool. It's very grounded in sort of classical mythology. And I wanted more, a little bit more of that. Yeah. In Hellboy 2. Not a ton. Again, that's not the part of Hellboy that I love. I mean, you've already mentioned the things about Hellboy that I love which is the atmosphere of those comics, the art of those comics, the sort of, I'll say, quietude of most of them. I mean, the vast majority of the early Hellboy comics are almost wordless. Like, they're just visual storytelling. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, when you're made character, when, when you know, because like at Comic-Con at this era, right, when when the original Hellboy's coming out, like, the big thing was to get your actor on stage and then have them, like, deliver an iconic line from that character, right? So that's where you're back when like Green Lantern came out, you've got that staged thing where Ryan Reynolds gets down in front of this kid and delivers the, you know, the the brightest day speech. And it's just like, uh, yeah, okay, fine. Yes, he knows the lines. But when the iconic line that you have Ron Perlman deliver on the Comic-Con stage is, oh crap, because <laughs> that's Hellboy's iconic line. <laughs> that should say something about the kind of character that you're playing here, right? Like this isn't Shakespeare. Um, it's, it's a character who is light on words, heavy on action. I, you know, laconic, ironic, right? Like he's just, he's a really weird mix for a lead character in a comic, which is why Mignola very smartly brought in a character like Abe Sapien who is incredibly intelligent and verbose to play off of Hellboy so that you can have the character, you know, sort of delivering the exposition while Hellboy is doing the punching. Um, you know, that doesn't work as well in a film, you know, especially yeah. in a film that just omits Ape Sapien and doesn't have him around. And, um, you know, <clears throat> uh, so yeah, uh, we'll, we'll get there. <laughs> uh, so it's, you know, the Hellboy series for me is this really unique and beautiful thing. And it's not all wonderful. Some of it's goofy. Again, most comic books are goofy when you start peeling away the layers, uh, which is the problem I think the Marvel universe is having right now. They've started to have Mm. to peel back the layers. And I'm sorry, when you peel back the layers far enough, Marvel shit is goofy. Uh, It is, it is, seat of the pants storytelling for 30 years because I love Stan Lee. I thought he, I think he was a genius. The stuff he came up with, especially working with, you know, absolute 
the problem with being a pioneer is you got to make shit up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all of it. And you're, you know, and he was working with Jack Kirby. He's working with Steve Ditko. And he's working with John Buscema. Like these guys are geniuses, right? And they're all just, just banging out world class stuff. But then you also get issues where it's like, oh, we're going to have the Fantastic Four fight a pharaoh in Egypt and time travel. And then that pharaoh in Egypt is actually King the Conqueror, who we introduced in Avengers 4, uh, in Avengers 8. And it's like, oh, okay. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Why not, man? That sounds a little out of hand. Yeah, like, and and again, you know, that's what you came to, to comic books for in the 60s, were these just, like, wildly crazy, just outlandish stories. Uh, so, I mean, I get it. But, you know, the fact that the MCU is trying to sort of maintain some of that without just completely rewriting those stories. I mean, they, they're kind of mixing and matching and picking and choosing, of course. But my my point is, comic books, at their core whether you call them graphic novels or not, are always going to be a bit silly. And you can either embrace that and just sort of run with it and have fun with it, or you can you can try and cover it up and make it edgy and cool and awesome. And and both approaches have pros and cons. And with Hellboy, Hellboy was more on the cool and edgy side to begin with, just because of Mignola's particular style of storytelling. And Del Toro brought that back a little bit, did a little bit more goofiness with it, which I think kind of worked because the premise itself is like inherently silly. Um, this movie goes hardcore and edgy and, and just completely screws the balance up entirely. Right. Um, and it's, and it's, it's rough. Uh, it's rough from the start, but yes. Uh, so Hellboy is good. Um, if you want great stories, just go to Amazon and just, by all of the, the trade paperbacks of the collected stories. Um, Seed of Destruction is, is generally considered the first, although the, um, the collected stories, which I, I think the main was the chained coffin in that one. So it's the chained coffin and others, I think. And, uh, and that's like a bunch of one shot stories. So some of those came from back in the dark horse presents days. So technically they predate Seed of destruction, um, but Seed of Destruction is kind of where everything starts, and and then you can just kind of read in order from there. And they're great; they're 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 wonderful, wonderful stories. And Del Toro adapted mostly Seed of Destruction for the first Hellboy movie, with some additions from other later stories. Uh, Golden Army Hellboy Two is is pretty much its own story, Lo- you know, loosely pulled in stuff from other places, but. I think it was it was co-developed mostly between Del Toro and Mignola together, and it doesn't have a ton of ties into the comics themselves. It was more referential than adaptation. Yeah, it was just like a, a new adventure of Hellboy in these these stories. And again, most of Hellboy's adventures had not been written at that point. Like he had, I like Mignola had only done a few sort of major story arcs by the time the movie started. So you know, a lot of the storytelling that this movie depends upon didn't even exist when Hellboy two came out. So a very, it's, it's one of my favorite characters. I have a lot of love for it. Any seeing this character realized in just about any form is going to make me happy in some, at at some level. Um, So the first time I watched this, the movie made me angry. I was mad, 
not necessarily because it was awful, but because it was cheap. Yeah. Uh, this movie looks cheap in so many ways. Um, there is a it C- looks like it was made in like 2013. Uh, yes, there is a CG helicopter landing in this that looks like it came out of a video game from the PlayStation 2. It is <laughs> inexcusably bad. Um, and I don't know where the money went. They didn't spend a lot on it. Like it was only $50 million budget, which for a, a quote unquote blockbuster superhero movie, that's nothing. Like $50 million is a rom-com with one major star these days, right? Like, oh, you got McConaughey? All right, your budget's 50. Go, right? Like, I I, I kind of think that new movie with Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin and Sally Field, like the, the football moms movie that just came out, <laughs> I think that had a budget of $50 million, right? <laughs> so it's like, I kind of get it. They were limited. But if the helicopter landing shot looks bad, then don't use it. I I'll get that they landed, right? It's kind of like the JJ Abrams effect. I don't need to see Kylo Ren walking away from the ship to know that he landed safely. Right. If you remember at empire strikes back, we see Luke flying towards the cloud city. And then in the next shot, he's just in the cloud city and nobody was like, wait, did he land? You know, it's like, yeah, we get it. Right. Like pilot. People are not that dumb. Pilot um, well, land mean, ship, you know. People are that dumb, but mm-hmm. they're probably not that dumb. Not that dumb. But anyway, so um, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll get to that particular beef here in a bit, I guess. Uh, but so so Hellboy, good, right? That's my point. That's we spent the first twenty minutes trying to say Hellboy, good. Um, this Hellboy, not so good. But Hellboy in general, good. Good. And you should you should read slash watch Hellboy things because Hellboy is this crazy character, right? Like it's an absolutely insane idea that was that uh, that took Mignola years to figure out. Like he didn't just it wasn't like this lightning bolt thing. You can actually see in the history of comics the development of Hellboy into what he became, Uh, you know, very famously the original Hellboy, which was a much Hellboy's design is is kind of uh, gorilla-esque, right? He's really top-heavy, huge shoulders, little legs. Um, and and in his original design, which was like in a uh, Ashcan one-shot comic at the San Diego Comic-Con in like 1986 or 87, maybe, was his first appearance. And it was like this little four-page story, um, which is impossible to find and extremely expensive. Just let me that out there uh, as a person who loves Hellboy, I've looked and, <clears throat> but then he, you know, does a few things in, in dark horse presents. He uh, was good friends with John Byrne, very famously John Byrne. The, if you don't know the name, John Byrne, John Byrne is one of the most important writers and artists of the, basically of Marvel's bronze age. Like he, along with Chris Claremont, sort of remade the X-Men into a team that people gave a shit about. Because everybody forgets that they actually stopped making new X-Men stories with like issue 63 of X-Men. And then for three years, they just reprinted earlier stories. Right. So for three years, there were no new X-Men stories being told because X-Men was 
not doing well. They were basically keeping it on the shelves to just try and keep the brand alive. And then Chris Claremont and John Byrne came in and they rebooted the X-Men uh, into the, the new team. So Storm, Colossus, Nightcrawler. Mm-hmm. Like they brought all of those people in, re- rebranded the X-Men again and sort of relaunched that series and turned it into the juggernaut that it eventually became. So, you know, John Byrne was one of the people involved in that. Um, and, a, and a brilliant writer and artist in his own right. And so um, very famously Hellboy's first like appearance in his, his current, you know, sort of Hellboy form was on an issue of John Byrne's next men. <laughs> Get it. He made <laughs> X, he made X men <laughs> and then he made uh, next men. Um, yeah. Like I said, <laughs> comic books are weird. <laughs> Keep that in mind. <laughs> Uh, and so uh, Hellboy appeared in a side story in one of John Byrne's next men comics for Dark Horse. Dark Horse had, had expressed interest in a long form version of the character. Byrne helped Mignola script, you know, the first long form Hellboy stories. And then, you know, here we are today. So that brings us to Hellboy 2019. The Guillermo del Toro movies ended in 07, I guess. Um, uh seven or oh eight i don't remember uh, i think it was oh eight and and hellboy 2 did not it hellboy 2 made money everybody likes to think that hellboy 2 was just this dismal failure it was not it, it did not do like bang up numbers but it did okay it was not a a, a failure <clears throat> but it was not enough that the studio wanted to continue with the same creative team so things got weird you know, this is Mignola's character, and at the time, you know, and this was around the time that Sin City was also coming around, which was another big Dark Horse comic adaptation. Not a great one, in my opinion. Um, that's a rough film to watch. I actually rewatched it not too long ago just to be like, it was the question was, I wonder how Sin City has hold up. Answer, not well. I we we've talked about how I feel about Frank Miller. I'm not even gonna I'm not even gonna start. Yeah, Frank I've already talked about him on this podcast. Mm-hmm. I and everybody knows how I feel. And if you don't go back and find the episode where I got upset about it before. <sighs> and so, you know, Hellboy. The the studio says we like Hellboy as a character, but Hellboy. You know, we got we saw a lot of reviews saying Hellboy Two is too weird. We got this Guillermo del Toro kid. He's done fine. But I think Del Toro was chafing a bit. This would have also been around the time that Del Toro was being offered The Hobbit. This would have started that time period, which Del Toro talks about being an extremely difficult time period in his career. Um, so in essence, they wanted to continue the franchise, but not with Del Toro as director. Or not with Del Toro as writer and director. And Del Toro, of course, who at this point is writer and director because he had won his Oscar by the time Hellboy 2 happened, right? He had won for Pan's Labyrinth. Mm. So he's got some clout, right? And so the studio says, well, we don't want Del Toro to write it. We want to bring in our own writer and Del Toro walks. He's like, I'm not going to do that. If I can't write it and direct it, I'm not interested. And of course that causes a cascade of, you know, Ron Perlman's not going to do it. If Del Toro's not going to do it, I imagine most of the other cast felt similarly. And so they all kind of just, you know, depart. And so that leaves 
Mignola and whatever, you know, studio assigned scriptwriter. Uh, there were a couple, Andrew Crosby, I think wound up with the final credit on this Hellboy film. Um, who interestingly, okay. So I did want to point this out. Uh, I know you don't read a ton of comics currently, um, but yeah. a- Andrew Cosby is a very interesting dude. So um, do you remember Cowboys and Aliens? Oh, yeah. Okay. The John Favreau, um, new James Bond at that point, uh, Harrison Ford, right? Very, you know, it's it a big cast. So Cowboys and Aliens was famous in comics because it had been a pitch, a script pitch that these dudes had shopped around Hollywood for years, right? Cowboys and aliens. What a sell, right? Elevator pitch material. And it had been rejected. So those dudes started a comic book company to publish their own story as a comic book. They used that to build incredible hype around this comic book. The comic book comes out, sells fairly well. Now that they've sold the comic book, they go back to the studio saying, hey, we have an adaptation of a top comic book called Cowboys and Aliens. Are you interested in making it? And now the studios are like, hmm, yes. <laughs> right. So they, they gamed the system, right? They figured out how to get Hollywood's attention. Hot comic books are hot. We'll take our script, make a comic book of it, then come back and say it's an adaptation of the comic book. So in 2005, Boom Studios came into existence, right? And so Boom Studios, almost exclusively, this is what they do. They take script properties that are not selling in Hollywood, they turn them into comic books, and then they sell those comic book properties back to Hollywood. And Andrew Crosby is one of the co-founders of that company, (laughs) Right. Like he was one of the dudes that set all of this up. Uh, very famously, Boom Comic Books is doing uh, Berserker, which was is Keanu Reeves's story. And Keanu Reeves just announced on Jimmy Fallon like two days ago that it's going to be adapted into a film on Netflix. Right. So Boom is like funneling stuff to Netflix now. It's it's gross. Right. It's it's a gross thing to do. If good stories get made then I kind of don't care, I guess. But at the same time, it's like good stories should stand on their own. And in some ways they should be, they should be written to the medium they were designed for, right? Good, good movie stories don't necessarily make good comic book stories and vice versa. And, and so there's, as a comic book fan, I'm like, okay, I get why you're exploiting the system. It's hard to get noticed in Hollywood, especially for like original ideas. So if you paint it as it's not an original idea, right? we've already executed it fine, but it's, it's just weird. So Crosby's the one of the dudes who created that. And, and basically what it seems like it happened was that Mignola as a co-executive producer, right? Cause you know, Robert Rodriguez with Sin City had made uh, Frank Miller very famously his co-director. Like he basically said, since he was shooting the Frank Miller comic book that Miller was like his co-director. So he gave him a director credit for that movie, which at the time was like, people were mad. Like the director's guild was, was mad. Like you can't do that. Did he shoot anything on the film? And Rodriguez is like, well, no. And they're like, well, then you can't give him a director credit. And he's like, 
but he basically storyboarded the whole story. I was just shooting his story. And so like that guy, Rodriguez is on the director's guild shit list for years. Um, he may still be on it to be totally honest. Like maybe that's why the dude shoots all his movies in his backyard in Austin. I don't know. But so like very famously del Toro had made Mignola co-executive producer, which at the time, if I remember correctly, was a term that didn't exist. Like there was no such title on a film as co-executive producer. Um, because in like on a movie, executive producers are either the money men or the idea men, right? The executive producer had the idea and they brought it, they steered it to market or they're the people who just cut the checks. Right. And, and so he gave him a co-executive producer along with himself. So Mignola had a tremendous amount of creative control within the production. I'm, I'm assuming that was the purpose, right? To make sure that he could bring a lot to it. So Mignola's kind of left holding the bag. The studio says, we want a sequel. We want a Hellboy 3. Del Toro's no longer attached. Write a script. And so that's what they do. And then that lapses into development hell, obviously. Because of who's going to take that project over? Right? Who's going to come in and make a Hellboy 3 when Hellboy 2 hadn't done that well? And Hellboy 1 and 2 were these like super unique, super you know visually fascinating. I mean, they have Del Toro all over them. Who's going to come and, in and pick up that mantle? And after he won his Oscar, who would want to fill those shoes especially? They're like, oh, now he's like a great filmmaker. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, you know, you're not going to get Dime Store Daryl. You know, uh, oh, I've directed seven episodes of X-Files. Let me. Hi, my name is Rob Bowman. I directed X-Files. <laughs> I'll, I'll direct your Electra movie. Sure. You know, it's like you're not going to get Ugh. that guy. Um, yeah, let's. Woo. Hey, I like Rob Bowman. Rob Bowman directed some of the absolute best episodes of the X-Files. And I think he directed one of the Fast and Furious movies. But uh, that Electra movie is trash. <laughs> it is awful. Uh, but again, that's probably just Frank Miller's fault. Frank Miller sucks. Everything is. That's he a theory ruined, I'm developing. He ruined comics forever. <laughs> uh, no. Anyway, uh, Frank Miller's fine. Frank Miller's run on Daredevil is is probably where the Marvel Universe started getting cool again in the 80s. Um, and, and it certainly is okay if you like fridging love interests to inspire your main character to go hog wild and murder somebody. Um, you know, it's the oldest story in the book. Girl gets killed. Man kills another man. Feels bad about it. Doesn't suffer any consequences. It's the oldest yeah, tale in the story. <laughs> Uh, anywho, uh, so that brings us to this Hellboy. Uh, languishes for years. Uh, eventually, Neil Marshall. Oh, Neil. Um, what what can we say about Neil Marshall as director? Um, peaky. He's a peaky director. He's he has highs and he has lows as a director. Um, directed Dog Soldiers. Peak. Right. It's, it's dog soldiers may be one of the best werewolf movies ever. Like it's great. Uh, it's not American werewolf in London, but it's pretty close. Directs the descent peaky. Whew, that's a hike. I've only seen it once because that movie is that movie's in a cave and being stuck in caves is a thing. I'm not a fan of mm. <laughs> Right, me. No likey caves. Um, so he makes dog soldiers. He makes the descent. That's his 2002, his 2005. Then he makes Doomsday, um, 
which I was excited about Doomsday. I was like, oh man, this looks interesting. It's like George Miller, Mad Max, post-apocalypse, you know, people with spiky baseball bats killing each other. I was like, all right, yeah, let's do this. And then it came out and it was an unwatchable mess. It was edited, I I guess, by like a Gibbon monkey on ADD medication. (laughs) Um, I think they were just flinging film reels at the wall and seeing how they arranged. Um, It was incredibly bad, like incredibly bad. Then he makes that Centurion movie with Michael Fassbender. And it was fine, I guess. I mean, just like. I didn't see it. (laughs) I mean, it was like there were a bunch of like Roman Centurion. It it was one of those things. It's like it always happens. It's like the craziest thing. Like James Cameron makes the abyss and we get Deep Star Six and Leviathan in the same year. Right. Because like Hollywood's like they're making a movie underwater. We got to have an underwater movie. Let's go. And then like (laughs) guys chew cigars and come up with stupid ideas. And apparently in the mid 2000s, they did that for Roman centurion stories. And so he makes one of those. Again, it's like just weird and not very well made. It's super cheap. I know the budget was low. I mean, it it was definitely riding on 300s coattails. Thanks again, Frank Miller. God damn. Um, And Zack Snyder. (laughs) Ah, They ruined it all. No, I'm just kidding. Um, and, And then like a couple of like nothing then he basically doesn't make a movie for forever. Right. He, I think he did an anthology film, but he got into, he was doing game of Thrones. He directed some episodes of that and you know, they were fine. Like he, he, I think he directed the Blackwater episode where all the ships get blown up by the dragon fire or whatever. That was like a big season ender. So, you know, I mean, he's doing okay, but he hadn't directed a movie in a super long time. And, he decides to come back for Hellboy. He wants to do Hellboy, which makes a ton of sense. Apparently he's a comic book guy, you know, whatever. <laughs> so the, whatever. <laughs> so the movie kind of spools back up. And at this point now, you know, Mignola had returned to writing the comics. He did another like 20 or 30 issues of Hellboy stories with, again, with Duncan Figredo. And then he spooled up the BPRD team um, that started telling BPRD stories and, you know, Hellboy sort of resumed its place as a premier indie comic book franchise, right? And and so he had continued telling stories, deepening our understanding of Hellboy, and they bring him back in to co-write the initial drafts of the script with Andrew Crosby and, and a few other folks. And this Hellboy story is, all of the Hellboy stories have been kind of pick and choosy. Right. Everybody just kind of picks and chooses the stuff that they like. Hellboy, again, is is a lot of short stories. It's a lot of one shots, you know, just the, these are not like, you know, like Wolves of St. August is a great example. It's it's a, a single tale. It was released as a, a square bound, like 64 page comic, and it tells an entire story. Right. It's not going on forever. It's just this isolated thing. So I, I understand the instinct to look at Hel- the, the the past of Hellboy and say like, oh, I just want to pick like this little piece over here that's cool. And I want to pick this little piece over here that's cool. And I want to kind of play with those ideas. That's how adaptation works, especially when you have a super long story, right? Because you can't do it all. Yeah. 
But this Hellboy movie, every single story element is pick and choose from some other place and then just kind of like squished together into a ball. And I don't understand it. I mean, I do. I do understand it. There's nothing that you won't understand about this film, but I don't understand this approach, especially for what is ostensibly a reboot. Like this went from being a sequel project to a reboot project. This script as it stands and the parts of Hellboy's lore that it covers makes more sense as a third film in a series. Yeah. But as a reboot series to bring this character back. And at this point it had been 10 years. All the reboot stuff feels like it was just shoved in, which it was, but it feels that way. It feels that way. Um, very famously, supposedly, this was also very heavily studio meddled. I, I will note that this is another example of almost every single humorous line is 80 yard off screen character dialogue, uh, which tells me that this film for the studio had a tone problem, probably a little bit too dark. And so they wanted some humor. And granted, the original Hellboy movies had humor, right? A lot of fish out of water humor, which is kind of Guillermo del Toro's like favorite kind of humor uh, i think hellboy should it. be funny yes no I mean, the comics as sparse as they are they're very they're funny, funny. like yeah i don't know i that so that seemed like it fit but yeah this movie is not funny it's not funny enough right it feels yeah. like it was being salvaged to be funny uh i will say there were some lines in it that got some laughs out of my family when we watched it Good one. Well, sure. Right. And, and so, I mean, there's, that's the most frustrating part about this is there's sparks of life in this movie. Yeah. And a lot of them come from the same place. And I think we'll both agree where it's coming from. Undoubtedly. Yeah. No, good. Good. Well, it's just, it's David Harbour. Yes. He's really, really likable. And I so wish that he had been given a better Hellboy movie to be in. Yeah, I'm kind of sad. They've already announced another Hellboy movie. Um, this one, of based, <laughs> this one based on the Crooked Man, uh, which is is a good Hellboy story. That's a very good Hellboy story. Um, but they've already recast it, and it's some rando dude who played Black Tom Cassidy for five seconds in Deadpool Two. I'm like, no, keep David Harbor, right? Like, like he's got the energy. It's he's, like it, he's. I good. am. You know, I am a huge Ron Perlman fan. Absolutely. I love him. I think that he brings back in the days when he was romancing Linda Hamilton in the sewers of New York City. Like I, I love him. <laughs> actually, yes. Um, <laughs> don't judge me. But no, it's a good I, show, man. I loved it, and he was the best part of Alien Resurrection. Oh, um, yeah. Because, <laughs> like, fault. talk about a deep, dark hole of a film that is just sheer misery. <laughs> the only bright spot was Ron Perlman. Yep. Um. And that I love said, that his though, face when she makes the over she makes the over the shoulder basketball shot. You could still see his actual reaction because they've been <laughs> shooting it all day, and she finally got it. And he was like, "Yeah." They they still <laughs> left just a little bit of it in, and I love it. But anyway, but like but. he was he was the perfect Hellboy. However, yeah, with some adjustments, I think David Harbor is a very close second. Harbor and and we had talked about this back right after you had watched it. Um, because once again, I I encouraged you to watch this one, and you were like, oh, "You subjected okay. me to this." 
and and you said it back then, and I agree wholeheartedly that Harbor is betrayed by the prosthetics in yeah. this film. Um, this movie has abysmal makeup. It's bad. Uh, kind of across the board. It's not just yeah. the Hellboy costume. And and again, I'm not a prosthetics designer. I am not a, a special effects makeup artist. I cannot imagine the challenge of trying to turn a you know six foot four ish human being into the hulking square jawed, like literally but, square jawed Hellboy. But, but like we've seen mm, it done and we saw it done really done, well. Yeah. And and yes, like Ron Perlman has a very kind of particular face. But the thing about Hellboy in the comics is he is incredibly expressive. Mm-hmm. Because it is so sparse, because the stories are not dialogue heavy, you don't have huge bubbles filled with text. A lot of the emotion you read on his face. Yeah. But the character's jaw is incredibly heavy, so you don't get the expression through his mouth. You get it with his eyes. It's all in the eyes. Yeah. It's all in the eyes. He makes cute faces. He may he has like big round eyes when he's shocked by something and he narrows his his eyebrows whenever he's angry and like there's there's a lot of variation in a very kind of simply designed character. David Harbour can't move his fucking brows in no. this prosthetic and it ruins it because he can't make any faces. <laughs> It right. sucks. He's forced to work with the jaw and his mouth. Yeah. And 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 the jaw is so heavy and rendered so immovable by the prosthetics that you you've taken an actor who I mean, you know, we could get into a whole another discussion about Stranger Things and nostalgia baits and you know He's a very expressive Steven actor. Spielberg. But David Harbour, I will be super honest, like the the eighties kids on bikes shit in stranger things was was certainly cute. attractive to me and cute but it but was but he's david, the reason to come back it was david harbour's <laughs> character arc in that first season that made me give a shit about any of that stuff yeah and the fact that you could tell that this guy and harbour's done interviews he was like i was done with tv and movie acting before stranger things like i was headed back to new york he's like i love being on stage I, that's where my heart is anyway I took the TV and movie stuff for cash and I was, I was like always the ninth on the call sheet guy, you know, like I, I was never going to be at the top. I was done. I was out. I was just, I was going to be okay with it. And, and then he's like, then I got this script. I really identified with this guy and, and they let me craft him the way I wanted to craft him. He said, I gained weight. I started smoking again. Like I just, <laughs> I felt this dude. I knew who this dude was. And, and I feel like stranger things without those adult characters in the first season. Cause you know, yes, Winona Ryder gets the crazy eyes all the time in that show, but without those adult anchor characters, stranger things wouldn't work. It just, yeah. does, it has no, it has no emotional drive because it's just kid. It's just the problem of eighties kids screaming. And you could argue the same thing is true of most of Spielberg's kid output. Right. Without D. Wallace's incredible performance as the mom in E.T., E.T. still might. It kind of doesn't work. Right. You know, even Peter Wolf at the end coming in as the researcher guy. Whatever. All right. We could just we could go on and on. But anyway, 
Let's David, not get started on Spielberg. We'll be here all day. We'll be here all day. <laughs> David Harbour is a great actor. David Harbour needs all of the tools at his disposal to be able to be a great actor. And this film, by the nature of its prosthetics, which I'm sure were developed with Harbour and doing their best, they rob him of the ability to emote in significant ways. And, yeah. and as a result, Hellboy feels kind of stale. He yells a lot. He screams a lot. And there are some scenes that I feel are pretty powerful when he gets to cut loose like that, but it's, it's limited. It's just, it's, it's inherently limited. And I think it keeps the character from being, you know, as incredible on screen as it could be when he is standing still and just like framed in shot. He looks great. It's a good version of Hellboy. Um, and, and again, Harbor has the, the physicality, like the size he's at least approximating that for Hellboy. Um, nobody likes to do the cloven hooves. I just, I wish somebody would do the hooves. I know that would be such pain, but anyway, it doesn't want to, they just don't want to, I know that would be hard. And that's like a weird prosthetic thing that would take a long time. But anyway, um, so Harbor's good in this, the, the rest of the cast, I mean, Daniel day Kim is worth noting, uh, just cause Daniel day Kim always does a great job. Like even on that weird, whatever, whatever show he was, he on Hawaii five Oh, I guess he was, he was on the Hawaii five Oh reboot and, and he's even good on that. Like he's just, he's good. <clears throat> um, he plays a character introduced, uh, much later in the Hellboy series as part of the BPRD, uh, Ben Daimyo. And, and I was happy to see him. You could tell that they were struggling. Again, if this was developed as a sequel, there are characters missing from this movie. So they have to sort of bring in other characters to make it feel fresh, I guess, once they decided the reboot. So they picked characters from later in the Hellboy run. Alice Monaghan, who's a, a medium, I guess. Like, she communicates with the dead. Yeah. And then Daimyo, who is, and this is a reveal in the film, so spoilers, I guess, if you care. Um, he's a wear jaguar, uh, which is, again, a, a thing, apparently. <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, but it is. Uh, it is. And, and he's good. He's really good. I wish he was allowed more screen time. Because for half of the time that he's in this movie, he's trying to betray and kill Hellboy because he thinks he's a threat. And then for the latter half, he's like a begrudging ally. And then at the end, they're like a superhero team. It's, it's very, it's a weird, like stunted, like, oh, there, there was an arc here. Yeah. Something got lost. Something got cut. Yeah. Something just got pulled out, you know. Well, if this were Hellboy 3, there probably would have been more time dedicated to it. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's, it's a very strange, um, it's a very strange character arc because um, he doesn't really get introduced till about halfway through the movie. Like it's once he meets Alice and then he's introduced to MI 11, which I, I love <laughs> you know, not in my six in my 11 just to tell you how much bigger than in my six it is. Uh, so, all right, let's, let's talk about the story. The car- uh, Ian McShane plays Trevor broom, horribly Hate miscast, it. horribly Awful. miscast uh, broom. They have some weird side thing in this where they say that everybody who was present at Hellboy's arrival was blessed with long life. 
so they could oversee his growth or something. Um, which seems more just like a narrative reason to not have to do age makeup for Ian McShane uh, and some of these other characters. But I, that's, it's a throwaway line. It doesn't really matter, but Hellboy notices in a picture that everybody looks the same. And then they kind of like hand wave it later. Um, But McShane, as much as I like, I mean, I like Ian McShane. He's great. Yeah. He's a great actor. It's just, he's not a Trevor Broom. No. um, Or or Brutenholm, which they insist on calling him in this one. Which I know his name, his actual name in the comics is Bruton Holm, but nobody fucking calls that's him not that what in they the call comics. Him. They call him Doctor Broom. That's it's a joke. It's another like funny joke. He's sweeping out the supernatural garden. Whatever. Okay. Anyway, Ian um, McShane should play men who are also squids. He was really good at that. <laughs> yep, he's a good. He's a good. Um, <laughs> he's a good pirate man. It, like I, I really do like him. I like a lot of things that he's been in. It's just not here. But again, I just feel like we're we're set up for the worst because Broom was played by John Hurt, and you can't yeah. replace John. You're not going to be able to replace John Hurt, and he was perfect. <laughs> yeah, the thing I liked about Del Toro and his adaptation of Hellboy was that he wasn't directly copying Mignola's designs. But he always, and Del Toro is good at this in almost everything he does. He's always good at picking the one or two bits of visual styling of a character that you need to both recognize them and remember them, mm-hmm. right? If you watch Pinocchio, his recent animated film, which just won Best Animated Film at the Oscars, yeah, well-deserved. So good. You know, if you look at, at, at Geppetto's hairline, right? Like it's this swept back, deep widow's peak widow's peak um mm-hmm. you know it's it's this deep you know it gives his face this angularity that sets it apart from pretty much everyone else in the film and you know in animated films you need to do that for character differentiation you know they call it your, your silhouette right like you need a strong silhouette for each character that audiences can immediately recognize them and and del toro brings that to his characters in every film so you know, John Hurt had Broom's kind of like, you know, V-shaped haircut, right? This sort of like poofy classic, you know, a 1930s haircut if you stopped gelling it down kind of thing. Um, and he, he brings he that like in. He like a man glasses, who's too busy you know? to fix up his hair. Yeah, like he just doesn't care about those kinds of things. Um, and, and this, McShane just doesn't have that. There's no qualities about Trevor Broom as he portrays him that make him singular. He's just an angry man. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I I guess one other thing to note about Hellboy, and I think that Harbor was trying to do this in his performance. It even gets lost to a certain extent in the del Toro editions. Um, There's those scenes at the opening in the BPRD where we get the impression of this, but one of the things why, why Hellboy is called Hellboy is that Hellboy's physical body ages at like 10 times the rate of his, of his, his mind. Right. So by the time Hellboy was two or three years old, he had the body of this massive ape, like bodybuilder, but he's a kid. Like he's, he's a baby. Um, yeah, he, he, he acts impulsively because he's a teenager. He is literally a teenager. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of that that tries to get explored in this film, this sort of like contentious teenager dad energy, 
But because that isn't reestablished, because that connection, it just makes Harbor come off as petulant, right? Like, yeah. cause, cause we don't get that. Oh, the reason why he's getting drunk in Mexico after he kills a vampire is because he's actually 12, yeah, right? He has no impulse control and he has zero impulse control and he is huge and hulking and menacing and people just give him whatever he wants. And, and like, again, Del Toro touches on this a little bit in the beginning, the relationship between Broom and Hellboy is much more gentle in that, like Broom is much more sort of like understanding and, and just like, you know, Oh, I, you know, I care for you. I want the best for you. And so you, you get that impression of that sort of distance between Hellboy's physicality and his mental state a little bit more. Perlman also smartly plays it up in sort of the ham handed fumbly way that he tries to, you know, make a pass. Well, not really a pass, but the way he tries to sort of appeal to uh, Liz Sherman. Um, he handles it like a very immature person. Like a, yeah. Like or, a 14 like year a old kid. kid trying to, trying to impress a girl, you know, um, you're showing up with like a six pack of a six beer, pack <laughs> beer. Cause this must be what she's into. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and so Harbor doesn't really get the chance to do that, unfortunately. And, I, I, again, it's it's just an oversight that maybe was cut in editing. I'm sure there was a scene for it and they ended up cutting it or something. But, you know, that that needed to be reinforced because you can tell that Harbor is playing this character with that kind of swagger and and sort of just yeah, whatever, man, like he's bringing that to the table. And it just because we don't have the context for why he's that way, it sort of makes the character seem less. Less. He, well, he's it less intimidating, flat. but it just, it's flat. Like we don't understand the context. So that was one thing I, w- I did want to note is that, you know, Magnolia takes great care to show that Hellboy is basically this child in a man's body, right? Like that's sort of the idea. Okay. So let's, uh, let's talk story uh, because the story for me is probably where this film falls the most flat, not because any of the stories being told in it are inherently bad or executed exceptionally poorly, but because we are, as I said, cherry picking and mishmashing from like six different Hellboy storylines to craft one hundred minute movie, right? Or I guess it is 120 minutes, but you know, I, I don't know, man. Like again, Hellboy stories are sparse right? Like they are sort of these big wide open spaces, generally small stories, right? Like little focused Hellboy fights, this mythical creature kind of stories. But I mean, are you telling me that you can't adapt one of those successfully? Like in a world where Stephen King says by far the best adaptations of my stories are when they take one of the short stories and expand into film instead of taking a long form story and trying to shrink it down into film. Yeah. So why are you cramming this movie full of all this shit? Any one of these or even part of one of these is enough to fill a two hour runtime of the film. In my humble opinion, right? Like that's kind of why I'm glad they're doing. They're specifically calling out that they're doing the crooked man because the crooked man is a very small i think it was like a two issue uh comic i think it was a two issue arc it's very short it's like 40 pages 
So I'm, I'm kind of like, okay, that's, that's good. <laughs> like that makes me, that makes me feel good because like, then you can expand, you can add, you can flesh out, like you could do cool shit instead of just cramming 17 different Hellboy stories into some, what, it's just like, why, why are you doing this? Uh, you don't have to, right? And it, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to me. Um, cause this, this movie is a collection mostly from three Hellboy arcs that have all been serialized. You can just go buy these arcs and just read them. Um, but the main one, as far as I can tell that they're pulling from is, uh, the wild hunt. Um, which, you know, thanks to the Witcher, <laughs> most people know what the wild hunt is now. Uh, so thanks Witcher. Uh, but it's, you know, it's, it's a classic European myth about, you know, and it's into the world apocalypse stuff, um, just readapted into, you know, this different context. And so the story of this movie is apart from the opening, which we'll get to in a minute. <laughs> I, I don't even know why they did that opening. Like, uh, all right, well, we're into spoilers. We're going to, we're just going to spoil this movie. Now, if you want to go see it, it's on HBO max. It's, it's a watchable movie. It's not terrible, but it ain't great. Right? It's, yeah, it's, don't get it, your hopes up. You will be left one. You will be left wanting more and not necessarily of this. Right? <laughs> um, you will probably want more Hellboy, but you're not going to want more of this Hellboy. Probably. Well, and that's the thing. I walked away from this saying like, God, 2004 Hellboy was a great movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know? <laughs> Um, so the, this story opens, well, once we do the very short and kind of badly executed, it just looks, I mean, it looks like a reshoot shot on a soundstage in an afternoon. It, it's just not good, but we get a short retelling of Hellboy's birth, which took place on an Island in it's Ireland. Right. Um, or it's not, it's not Ireland, but it, it's on an Island. Uh, it's the Nazis. They're calling up a demon because they're losing the war. Rasputin is there because why not? And, and he's kind of architecting this thing. And <clears throat> cause Rasputin didn't, can't die. He's immortal. Just if you didn't yeah. know that. That's true. That's true. He's still running <laughs> around out there. He's still um, alive. <laughs> he's still out there. And, and so we get a brief retelling of that. Hellboy emerges. Uh, the allies arrive, aided by you know superhero of the day, adventurer extraordinaire Lobster Johnson, and uh, Trevor Brutenholm decides to raise the demon that the Nazis uh, brought forth from hell uh, as his son, as the Hell Boy. Uh, the the better version of it is in the 2004 Hellboy. It's pretty much the yeah. same, um, but that one actually captures. Because very famously in the comics, he gives him a baby Ruth candy bar and Hellboy's like, oh, this is pretty good. Right. And then they, you know, it's beautiful. The this way, one had the way Lobster that, Johnson. It did. the first, like, Which was really cool, but it was, it felt like a tease because right. that was it. Yeah. You can tell that they were kind of, because that was the one thing absent from the Del Toro version. It's like, well, where's Lobster Johnson? And they didn't do it. And I was like, oh, um, but anyway, <laughs> 
So it's a nice it's a nice scene. I mean, it works well. It goes by fast. But, you know, obviously, as a reboot that wasn't originally planned as a reboot or scripted as a reboot, this feels like a tacked on thing just to explain for people who don't know. Right. And and so we get that. And then there is an opening scene we'll talk about later because it's it's another one that they cribbed it from Hellboy in Mexico. And it's like, why? Why did you do this? Why did you blow a great little Hellboy one-shot story on a five-minute opening sequence that amounts to nothing? I don't get it. Because we had this extra five minutes that they wanted us to do something we didn't know what to do. And we're going to appease the fans. Ah, oh, The fans yeah. will be like, ah, oh, Hellboy in Mexico is one of my favorites. It's like, yeah, it is one of my favorites. So why did you blow its entire story on this stupid moment in your film you didn't even need? Um, but the bulk of the film involves Hell, Hellboy traveling to England and fighting, they refer to her as as the Blood Queen in the film repeatedly, um, and it's it's supposed to be uh, Nimue. Um, basically, it's the Lady of the Lake. That's who she is. Mm-hmm. Um, and and again, Mignola is this. The man's basically an encyclopedia de mythica, right? Like the dude just loves mythology, all mythology. He is a lifelong student of myth. He has absorbed all of this information and he remixes it and plays with it and does all this cool shit with it. And and in essence, the Blood Queen was betrayed by King Arthur. Um, her body was chopped up by Excalibur, sent to all, uh, all the links of the land so that she could never reassemble. And, and he was able to stop her from spreading this ancient plague. Right. So that's the bulk of the story is, is Hellboy fighting the blood queen to prevent her from starting the apocalypse. Right. So we're getting stuff from the wild hunt arc. We're getting stuff from the storm and the fury, which came after the wild hunt arc. We're getting stuff from seed of destruction. Cause they can't not tell us that Hellboy is also a Nung Unrama, you know, the one with the flame of crown or the crown of flame on his head. Right. They can't not, Tell us that stuff because that's kind of essential, um, but that's from Seed of Destruction, you know. And and this is already a mess. We haven't even gotten into the meat and potatoes of the story, and it's no, already a wreck. It's, it's a it's a wreck, dude. I mean, and then they still have they have to explain the right hand of doom because if you haven't seen Hellboy's design, you know you can you can look it up. But his right hand is this giant stone hand, like he's got a regular hand, and then he's got this giant stone hand. And in the comic book, it is the hand he uses to punch things. It is his mm-hmm. punching hand. And it's very cool. It looks awesome. One of the jokes in this movie that I really liked was when he tries to hang up his phone and he breaks <laughs> it because he uses his stone hand. Yeah. He's every time, <laughs> That's he, really funny. Every time he taps it off. He's like, <laughs> and again, it's ADR. It's off screen. It's David Harbour going like, God damn it. You know, like or whatever. But it's again, it's a recurring joke. They get their three jokes out of it. It's very funny. But like it's, you know, there are pieces of Hellboy that get explained in those earlier stories that if you try to adapt one of the later stories, you still have to find a way to inject this shit in to explain because otherwise it just doesn't make sense. Which again is like, why, if you're rebooting it, would you not just tell one of the earlier stories again? Mm. Right. It Yes. Hellboy 2004 dealt with Seed of Destruction, but it didn't deal with all of Seed of Destruction. Right. It didn't cover every bit of that story. 
And there are places and ways that you could push into it in ways that Del Toro didn't to get a lot of mileage out of that. But so anyway, the Blood Queen is is coming and, and Hellboy is the only one who can stop her. So that's where we get introduced to uh, the Osiris Club, which is a group of, uh, you know, an ancient British aristocratic society. And an they, ancient secret society. Yep. Oh, man. Love you, if you are into ancient secret societies, Hellboy is the comic for <laughs> you because they're everywhere. And uh, so Hellboy is invited to hunt giants, to a giant hunt, right? Hence the, the wild hunt. Um, and, uh, there are three of them on the loose wreaking havoc in the British countryside. It's been kept under wraps, but now the Osiris club must go on a wild hunt to eliminate the giants, but it's a setup. And, and here was another aspect of the story that I was just, I was really confused by. Okay. So Hellboy is in Mexico. I guess let's just deal with it now. Yeah. All right. So we get the little opener. Here's Hellboy's past history of you know Lobster Johnson. Blah 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 blah. That ends. Then we flash forward. You know we get the present day title card, whatever. And Hellboy is in Mexico because they've lost contact with a BPRD agent, and he's trying to find him. He says he was down there hunting a pack of vampires. Bring him back. So this started. And I was like, well, that's not exactly it, but that sounds a lot like Hellboy in Mexico. I was like, is this, are they doing Hellboy in Mexico for this? Like that's, I mean, I was like, well, that's kind of cool. I mean, that would be like a Hellboy vampire story. That's fun. And then I am, I immediately was like, oh no, oh no, this is the cold open. They're using Hellboy in Mexico as the cold open. For their Hellboy movie. We just had a cold open telling us his backstory. Now we're getting a second cold open that's going to establish this movie Hellboy. starts like three times. And there's like three starts to this movie. It's very, it's very bad. But so like Hellboy in Mexico was, was a wonderful one shot story. Not super long again. That was just an excuse for Hellboy to fight a luchador. Like it's, it's, that's it. Like it's a, it's fun. It's, Mignola really was really good fun. about showing people fun things that kind of popped up. I mean, that, that was just part of it. Like what if, what if Hellboy did this? Yeah. And it was, it was like released on Cinco de Mayo. Like it was like, it was this yeah. whole big thing, right? It was like, haha, Hellboy does. Me, you know, and now here it is from Mexico from all meaning. Yeah. And it's, just here it's just done. Yeah. We so did it. it's, so the guy that he's looking for, and we don't know how long he's been gone, but it doesn't seem like it's been that long, right? Like if an agent hunting vampires went missing for more than a week, wouldn't you think that something might've gone wrong and go looking? I, I would. Mm. But so we get down there and we find out that not only is, is this guy that he's looking for now a, a apparently very well-known luchador fighter named Kamazots, which is from the, that's from the one shot. But Hellboy doesn't recognize him immediately, which is a little weird. Uh, he does quickly, but I don't want to make it seem like he doesn't. But he doesn't realize what's going on <laughs> very quickly. He's a little slow on the uptake. Um, but it, it, the the 
fighter turns into a vampire. Hellboy fights the vampire, kills the vampire, kills a friend, right? We don't understand the emotional resonance of this because we don't know this person. We never see this person in any context other than him being a vampire luchador. So Hellboy is forced then. We we just have to believe that he would be super upset by this development. You know, I, I was like, okay, well, if, if this was your cold open, if this is where you're establishing that Hellboy like has friends that he cares about and wants to see protected and safe, that's good. But we need to know who this guy is. I mean, we don't even see a picture of the actor. Like I kind of would have expected to see like, you know, here's the alert, the BPRD alert with the picture of the agent and like, Hey, you know, we're, this guy's missing or whatever. But like, I feel bad for the actor that played this guy. Cause we never see him outside of the, either wearing the luchador mask or the vampire makeup. Yeah. So I'm like, was he even in the movie? I don't know. And, and so it's just very, I don't know, man, it's it to take one of my favorite one shots. That's just sort of like fun, goofy Hellboy stuff and turn it into this like meaningless and silly open was, was kind of silly and it, it made my heart hurt a little bit. Um, again, we, we do get to see Hellboy fight in a luchador rink or ring. Um, and then he gets just head smashingly drunk after this, apparently for weeks, like he's down there forever before they come get him. And then he's immediately whisked off to England to go on this wild hunt because his father says, you know, broom says, Hey, these people need you to come help with this wild hunt. And then those people betray him. And I'm like, so did Brutenholm know that they were going to do that and just figured Hellboy would be fine? He doesn't seem particularly perturbed that they did try to kill him when Hellboy says that that's what happened. You know, and, and there's this constant ticking clock, I guess. So he's just like, ah, oh, that's, that's in the past. Let's, we got to worry about this now. And I, I don't know, man, like all of these like little pieces to get the movie going did not work. Just don't work. Um, once the movie's if, up and running, it's fine. But if you, if you, the problem is you can't think about anything for more than a minute. Because yeah, like it, just it is all kind sense. of being thrown at you really fast. But if you stop, like if there's, if there's ever a lull and you're like, no, wait a minute. Why is everybody okay with this? <laughs> right. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. <it> <laughs> Like the, the BPRD seems like the most ineptly run organization ever um, at this point. So, so they get to the wild hunt. We get a lot of very, there's tons of expository dialogue all over this thing, which again, I understand it's just a, it's just a function of these movies. You got to have somebody who says the thing to explain the thing, but man, it's just clunky in this. Like the whole movie just dead stops for three to five minutes and a character stands and looks at the camera and says, ah, Hellboy. Yes, I remember the days back when you were the Hellboy and your father was there. It was a wonderful time. We were all fighting Nazis. And and, and they just kind of go on like that for a long time. Yeah. You know, even though it, technically we'd seen, we'd actually seen some of that stuff. It's like, yeah, you don't have to re-explain this. But, so but in the, case you forgot. But in case you <laughs> forgot. And so then they have to set up the side characters, right? So the first one, mm. and again, I want you to explain this one to me. They they hand wave it, but I still was like, really? So Hellboy's fighting these giants, and I will be the first to say, um, because you know the Wild Hunt betrays him. They're they're in the process of killing Hellboy, 
and then the giants that they were supposed to be hunting because it turns out there were giants. Yeah, that wasn't a ruse. That wasn't just a <laughs> ruse. Like, it seems like that would be the ruse to say, oh, we're going to get Hellboy over here, get him isolated and then kill him. But no, there were actually three giants going crazy on the countryside. So I'm like. So like how much planning went into this? Well, yeah, like you're supposed to be the secret ancient society of highly intelligent, aristocratic white men. Uh, I mean, I, I guess it's cool that you're stupid. Like, it's good. I like that it's saying that you're stupid. But shouldn't you have executed this a little bit more efficiently, right? Gone and actually like dealt with the giants first. you should have been smarter first. than that. Yeah, because, you know, fighting a demon from hell and three giants at the same time, I know you've got your little electric poker sticks that you're super fond of, but it seems like maybe a bit more planning might have been in order. And uh, so they get massacred, and then Hellboy is left to fight the three giants, which he does successfully. And it's a great action sequence. It doesn't look so great sometimes. Some of the the like CG body double Hellboy stuff is a little weak, um, but it's it's a pretty good. It's a fun action sequence watching him fight the giants um, and kill them with you know big weapons and stuff. But then he he collapses right because you know he's in such pain and and then that's when we're introduced to Alice mm-hmm. uh, Monahan. Who again, character from later in the series, she's medium, she talks to the dead. So I think she she hand waves later and says, oh, the dead told me what was going on. So she got a taxi, I believe is what she said, and drove out to the woods where Hellboy was fighting giants in this taxi and then collected him, the 600-pound gorilla demon boy, mm. into the taxi by herself. And then carried him up to her like 13th floor flat in London. I'm going to pull a Simpsons here and say that whenever something like this happens in a movie, a wizard did it. Yes, that's the only answer here. So again, it feels like, and we've, we've used this expression before, scenes missing. Yeah. Scenes missing. I think that he was supposed to hook up with Alice via other means. Because here's the way it goes. Okay, so is it he has a dream remembering what happened with Alice before he wakes up in Alice's apartment? I don't remember how that was explained. Maybe, Or maybe it was after she introduces herself, we get the flashback. But basically what, you know, the, the sort of classic European mythological story of a fairy stealing a baby and replacing it with a changeling of some kind. Um that that's what happened to Alice. She was a baby. Her parents called Hellboy, you know, these years before. And he determined that, um, it was a, uh, Oh, I forget the specific, a Gruagok, I guess. Um, and, and he determines that he uses iron to dispel it. And then the fairies return the real Alice. So he saves her as a child. And, and it's perhaps hinted that her sort of touch with that other side is what maybe, you know, contributed to her developing this, this medium ability. And so we have to very quickly introduce that, right? And so it feels like this would have been a thing where Hellboy encountered the, the Gruagok 
and then mm-hmm. realized who he was and then sought out Alice to get more inf- information about what happened to her after that to try and understand the screw agak and what it's trying to do. But it feels like in editing, they had to take out those pieces and then flipped it and had us get introduced to Alice, which sets up the Gruagok, which then explains why the Gruagok wants revenge on Hellboy. So it's it's like narratively out of sequence for me. Like the way that we're introduced to these pieces being set up is reversed from what it should have been. Hellboy should have encountered the Gruagok at the church when he's terrorizing the silent monks or whatever or at the Osiris club and then realized who it was or what it was remembered that he had expelled a Gruagok in the past and then found Alice. Yeah, but instead that would have made sense. Instead it's Alice being told by the dead. Because she's, she's a medium. <laughs> you have to let the audience know that's right. right away. And then taking a taxi to the forest, the middle of the forest <laughs> To pick up a 600 pound Hellboy. It's a good thing the dead are very London. specific with their instructions. You know, it. one thing that most people don't realize is that the dead were the original GPS system, right? Oh, yeah. Because they would be like, well, you need to go left to where, where my cousin Gary's buried from a battle in 14 AD, you know, uh, it, whatever. It's, it's just very, it's very narratively jarring. And then Alice seemingly expects Hellboy to remember her from when she was a baby, which I was a little like, wait, why would he, why? Okay. Hellboy has a a fantastic memory. I'm sure. But the last time he saw you, you were a baby, right? (laughs) Why would he remember you just at visual? Um, wouldn't you want to say, I'm Alice Monahan? Remember the baby you saved from the fairies? And then he'd be like, Don't you oh, remember yeah. all the babies that you saved? All the babies. What's wrong with you. So many babies. I mean, because, like, I've, you know, there are certainly babies that wind up looking a bit like their adult counterparts, like the eyes, the brow, maybe. But, like, most babies, you can't visually, like, look at a baby and, and then look at a teenager and be like, Ah, yes, I remember you. I saw you for a few days in 1987. Now it's 2005. You look the same. (laughs) I love your dreads. (laughs) It's it's just, it's just very goofy. Now the strength, the strong part is, is that again, we have David Harbor here who, man, it is hard for me to express how hard David Harbor is working to make this work. Like he is into this and he is trying so hard to make this work. And he is just being betrayed at every turn. And all, kind of all of the actors are in that boat in this movie, except maybe Ian McShane. Ian McShane is phoning it in. This is a this is a swimming pool at my second house movie for Ian McShane. And I'm fine with that. You get those at, at his point in his career. You, you take those, and that's fine. But Harbour is really shooting for the moon. And I must say the same about the, the woman they have playing Alice. Uh, she's very good. I, I actually, the first yeah. time I thought she was a little bit over the top, and and snarkier than she needed to be. Um, but the second time through, I was like, you know, I, I kind of get what she's doing. Um, it's uh, Sasha Lane. And I think part of it is, and, and here's me something that, that wasn't. She is not British. Um, she was born in Texas. She is American. 
And and Alice uh, is Irish. Yes. And I'm going to be honest. Her accent is bad uh, yeah. most of the time. It's it's not inexcusably bad. But it, it sounds like she was given no preparation and precisely, no help. Precisely. An American trying to learn a, a realistic Irish accent is going to take time and they're it's going to take tremendous gonna energy. They're always going to sound like they're doing a leprechaun impersonation. And it's it's never good. Yeah, you know, it, it, it reminds me of that scene in home movies where the kid has been, he's been French. He's like, I am French. I am from France. But, and all the girls are like falling over him. And then at the, at the end of the episode, he, he reveals like, I'm not actually French. I'm from Canada. And Brennan's like, yeah, I knew. Like, because you have, like, this totally hacky, like, typical French accent. It's not a real French accent. And he's like, oh, you figured it out, eh? And he's like, he's like yeah. Like, it's super <laughs> obvious that you're not French. And and so it's it was kind of that for me a little bit. It's like, okay, you're you're not Irish. Like, you're trying real hard to, to sound Irish. But that's where I look at it and go, like, just hire an Irish actress. Like, There's lots. There's a bunch. And they're really good, and their and their accents are going to sound excellent <laughs> because they're, they're going to be like, real, totally real. And so, like, I I don't really she's she's doing a fine job with the abilities and tools that she has at her disposal, and I don't hate her in the in the role. I don't. No. Um. But it was just one of those head scratches. Like, why did you do it this way? Like, that doesn't make a ton of sense. I mean, because the only thing she'd really done before that, I think, was the was uh, Honey Boy, um, or Amer- American Honey, that movie, the the road the road trip movie with uh, Shia LaBeouf, okay. LaBeef. Before we knew that he was a piece of shit, <laughs> well, I guess we knew he was a piece of shit, but before we had it confirmed by court filings, and so. I'm like, you're not gaining anything by having this girl in the movie. So why not just cast an Irish actress? You know? So anyway, uh, so we get introduced to Alice. Alice has this medium ability. Hellboy picks up on it immediately. And then the entire building is destroyed by MI 11. Like they just blow into this place. Don't ask any questions. No one's in danger. Like Alice is a little bit leery of Hellboy. She has some kind of shotgun under the table for her medium readings where she can take people out. I guess if they get trouble, troublesome, uh, it's, it's a, it's an okay scene. It's fine. And then that's where we get introduced to Daniel day. Kim's Ben Daimyo. And I kind of like the way this planned out. Cause originally Ed's screen was going to play Ben Daimyo. Um, who, if you don't know who Ed Screen was, Ed Screen was Francis in the original Deadpool. So Deadpool and Hellboy, tons of crossover. Don't know why. Mm-hmm. I don't but know Screen, like that. yeah, not not a good not a good thing ultimately. Uh, but Screen pulled out because uh, he discovered that Daimyo in the comics was Japanese American. Um, I that makes me happy, and I I respect that. Yes, I was like, that's good because Daimyo is 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 Japanese and, and should be played by a, a, an actor of Asian descent. So Kim was hired, you know, Kim is Korean, but okay. <laughs> I mean, it's like hire, hire a person of color to play 
people of color. Like it's like it's not rocket surgery, you know. Just yeah, like you know, do your best. Yeah, just just you know, try and cast the character as they should be. It's, who knew? Yeah. Who figured? Oh, but Hellboy is a Hellboy. How do you cast a Hellboy? I just I don't know. Uh, but yeah, Daimyo. Uh, so Daniel Day Kim got the role, and I I really like him. Again, I wish he was in the movie more. I wish his character had better motivations for their actions. Because as I mentioned earlier, basically for the first part of this, he's part of a group of people that want to kill Hellboy because they feel like he is a threat to humanity. And, you know, they're not wrong. Right? Yeah. But my, my biggest beef with all of this is that Broom is working with these people. Right? Like, he's, he's part of this. And yet, he's not upset about this. Like, he's not fighting for Hellboy, you, you, you know, he's not defending really get, him. You don't really get any of the fatherly affection from Broom. And, and like in the comic, it's, it's not, it's not overdone, but it's a lot more present than it is in this movie. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I don't want to make it seem like Trevor Broom was like this amazing father, but there was a warmth to that character. Like he, he, he cared about Hellboy. Yeah, I mean, it's the whole reason he kept him. Like, the everyone yeah. was like, just kill it. And he's like, no, there's something here, something good. And we can foster that into something. I, I will take the responsibility. And none of that seems to come through in this. And, and it, it, again, it's probably just missing scenes and scenes edited to come off one way instead of another way. I don't really but unfortunately, hang any of this on the, effect, on the effect is that it makes it seem like Hellboy is being used. At least that's how I took it. That like he's he's a tool. Less, yeah. yeah, he's a tool of of the organization and of Broom, and he's not. There's not really any kind of relationship there. And I know that right. that's not. That's right. not generally. And I how know it's that's done. not yeah. what they uh, can't be what they intended. I wouldn't think so because if, if anything, you know, if you're talking about Hellboy's core relationships, in in the source material at least. Broom as his absent but well-meaning father. You know, they've they've had a, you know, in Seed of Destruction, they've had a falling out and they have not oh, yeah. communicated in a while, right? So that, that does happen. Just like it happens with fathers and sons in real life. Right, yeah, but it's not like a break and, and there's yeah. still like this this connection between them. Um, but again, I just it doesn't make sense that that the BPRD would be working aside these organizations that they would be constantly putting Hellboy's life in danger. Like in danger. Like again, he never reacts to the Osiris club's betrayal of Hellboy and their attempt to murder him. Like he never comments on it. MI six almost kills him when they break into Alice's apartment. They almost kill Alice. Broom never comments. Yeah, it's just like, Meh. yeah, it's like, we're moving on moving ahead. And it's like, but you know, there's, there's gotta be lines of boundary here that show that I'm looking out for this, this Hellboy, Right. And it just doesn't come through. And it was something that just on my second watch through was even more apparent that the relationship between Hellboy and, and broom is sort of fundamentally off in this movie. And, and it's, again, I imagine it's editing for time. It's editing to sort of push in a different direction, you know, whatever. But so we're setting up that secondary cast and then now is finally where the Nimue story really kicks off because the pieces are finally in place. 
the Gruagok we understand because we've seen him kind of moving around doing stuff. And the Gruagok is the one that I, I, I don't really understand how he got involved, right? Like who set him on this path? Was it Baba Yaga? Is that what we're supposed to believe? I think so. That Baba Yaga sort of pushed him in this direction because she wants revenge on Hellboy and she knows that the Gruagok wants revenge on Hellboy. And so she's very convoluted. It just, again, you're, you're picking and choosing man. Cause like Baba Yaga is one of the background antagonists of the entirety of Hellboy because in his original meeting, he sh- he shoots out her left eye. They eventually come to an agreement that she'll give his left eye, but then he gets out of it. And so she's chasing after his eye. It's, it's a whole thing, right? And this movie does display that. But it doesn't give any development, but like time to fit. develop. It, it, it's just like, it's, it's just shoehorned in here. Like all of the other, like the Mexico thing. It's like, why is this here? Yeah, like it doesn't need to be here to tell the story. This movie should have started with Hellboy touching down in England. You know, do your opening, show Hellboy being born, whatever. Like, yeah. I get it. You, it's a reboot. You got to get the normies. We already know you, you don't fucked understand. that part up, so just show us again. <laughs> it's whatever. You know, have him reading a Lobster Johnson comic book as he gets off the plane. He lands in England. You know, the Lobster John. like, I can see the transition. He does the, you know, here is my claw of justice. And then you transition that logo to the cover of the comic book that he's reading on the plane. Yeah. You connect them together. Yeah. Like, see, I can fucking make movies. (laughs) Why Um, won't anybody hire us? (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. Uh, But so like he lands on the plane, he go, the Osiris club becomes our exposition center where they're like, ah, hell boy, it's good to see you. Your adventures around the world are legendary. Blah, blah, blah. I'm a rich aristocratic butthole. I'm about to murder you. (laughs) Um, You know, the, the psychic lady by Sophie can play by Sophie Okanedo comes in. She gives a little bit of history. Then they go out to the hunt. He immediately gets betrayed. And then, you know, I would have much rather had he gets betrayed and then he gets dragged off into the forest by the Gruagok. Right. Yeah. The Gruagok's trying to torture him. And he's like, oh, I got plans for you, Hellboy. Ah, the Blood Queen. Nimue. You know, whatever. Like, I mean, you could do anything. And then Hellboy fights him. He escapes. He goes and he he finds Alice because he's like, the Gruagok's involved. It was the Gruagok that I got, uh, you know, that was impersonating you. What's been going on with your life? Do you have any connections? Blah, blah, blah. This is then, how Spielberg you know. would have made this movie. <laughs> Where, like you know how it starts with like a flashback with yep. like Indiana Jones right. and it's, then it comes into the new problem and it I, sets up the new story. And I'm so glad you said that because when I was thinking about this last night and trying to sort of articulate my thoughts on is like a hell, a good Hellboy movie is just an Indiana Jones movie. Like yeah. that's really all it is. Like that's your template. Your template is not some weird supernatural action film, right? It's, it's an Indiana Jones movie because Hellboy Adventure. at the end of the day is is a a adventurer delving into the ancient relics and places of the past right like that's yeah. what he's doing um and and so it was like yeah i mean like you 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 know you open with indiana jones in the caves in new mexico in 1918 or 1912 whatever it is you know it's it's the opening to indy 3 you know like you you yeah. give us our little past then you smoothly transition I, you know, I, I can't help when we watch movies and we talk about them afterwards with my family. Like, you know, we do a little film school stuff and I've taught my kids pretty early on to watch for like 
really good transitions, right? Like transitions in camera that you go like, ah, oh, that was clever. Like the lobster Johnson claw to the front of the comic book, right? Like that's, that's a nice transition. It seamlessly blends those. And we were watching Indy three and they do the, the hat down on the river Phoenix yep. and then the hat up from Indiana Jones. My son, set, my son set up and he was like, Oh dad, that was a boss transition. And you I know, was like, even, yes. even if you don't have the vocabulary for transition, like you don't understand what that means in film, that is still so cool. Cause you're like, that's how he got the hat. That's where the and hat there came he is from, in man. the hat. Oh, <laughs> like it's cool. It's so cool. Yeah. My daughter did the same thing. He's like, dad, that was a great transition. I'm like, that's, that's what Steven Spielberg does that shit without even trying. Like, I mean, I know it's effort. I know, but it's like, he's so seamless about that shit. It's so great. But so anyway, um, so then we get introduced, we get, and there's so many like weird layered flashbacks with voiceover broom provides most of it throughout the film until he's taken out of the movie. But so we get a very quick rundown of who Nimue was and it's just very clunky and, Oddly inserted. Nimue is played by Mia Jovovich for reasons. Uh, you I, know, I, I really don't know. I this is this is controversial, maybe. Sure. To like the few listeners that we have. She is not a good actress. I love the fifth <sighs> element too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's oh, a yeah. great movie. Yeah. That is carried by Bruce Willis. Yeah. Bruce Willis possibly giving one of the last five I give a shit about a shit about this performances of his career. And, and he's so great that you forget that she is just like a toddler making noises. She's the born sexy yesterday. Trope. Much of it. Yeah. And she's not a compelling actress. This is true. And then she was in the resident evil movies. And, and even though they are people's trash and like, yes, I have my trash. Mm-hmm. She's not good in them. She's not a good actress. No. She's, she's beautiful. She's funny. She's, she's a lovely person. Yeah, she's a, I, I prefer her comedy work. Like she's hilarious in Zoolander. Like she's so funny in Zoolander. Yeah. Um, but, but this is bad. Every time she's on screen, every time she opens her mouth, it feels like a fake movie. Yeah. Like how how did someone say cut and then go, yeah, we got it. That's that it. was great. Pr- cut print. That's the one, guys. <laughs> like all right. I, it's, Do you want to go baffling. back for another one? Yeah, she's doing this very like breathy over the top, like, I am a fantasy queen. <laughs> you know, it's like Ugh. the stuff that you expect to see um at a Ren Fair or something. Like it's it's really over the top. Um, I know you like Jenny Nicholson a lot. Did you watch her video mm. over the like weird Ren Fair theme park in Utah? Yes. <laughs> like a lot of her performance reminded me of stuff that Jenny Nicholson got from the performers at that place. Yeah. You know, just like, ah, uh, yes, go around the corner and you'll find the man in black. He's waiting for you. You know, like that it's kind just, of stuff. It's like, oh. It's so out of place in this. Yeah, it doesn't fit. None of it really hangs with the rest of the movie. And when it was this isolated flashback where it's just like her showing this, I was like, okay, well, this is fine. But then she shows up in the movie. She becomes a character in the modern day, and it's just as bad. And I was like, oh, my God. Oh, so bad. Um, So, yeah, Jovovich is not a bright spot in this. 
uh, visually she looks right. Like they, they, it's very evocative of, of the, the look of Nimue in the comics. Um, but I mean, to be honest, it's like a sheer silk gown with a weird crown of thorns kind of thing. I mean, going on. you know, it's not if you're a beautiful lady that you can put somebody in a damp nightgown <laughs> and they look great. Like it's like, it's true. that is, that's like minimum effort. <laughs> Yeah, minimum effort. That's a good way to put it. Whereas Deadpool is maximum effort. So yet another oh. Deadpool crossover. <laughs> um, okay, so backstory. Nimue was, as we said, betrayed by Arthur, you know, put in boxes, sent to the four corners of the earth, hidden in various places. And so we get a little bit of a, a good Hellboy MacGuff. I thought we were going to get a Hellboy MacGuffin story. Got to find the pieces of Nimue before the Gruagak. I was like, okay, well, that could be fun, right? You know, you got to go to these weird, you know, ancient places, dig up a thing, fight a monster maybe. Uh, but no, Mm-mm. nope, nope, nope. All that's been done. Gruagok's already been collecting all the pieces. He's got everything. There's only a couple left that he needs. So we get, I mean, a fun scene that I think is supposed to be a bit of a reference to the Wolves of St. August, um, where he goes to a, a monastery that has one of the pieces and they're silent so they can't scream while... Mm-hmm. He murders them, I guess, is the joke. Uh, and I, I guess this is where we can say that this film is very gory. This is an R, yeah. um, which I was a little concerned about watching with my family because my kids are still fairly young. Um, but it's so over the top and it comes in such weird bursts. Like it's not consistently scary or gory. It just sort of comes and goes. It's mostly the Gruagok. The Gruagok is... Okay, so let me ask you this. Is the Gruagok supposed to be a humorous character or a frightening character? To me, it felt only humorous. Yeah. Like, he's kind of a joke from the moment yeah. he's introduced. And, he's and a voiced, lot of it is the voice. <laughs> and he's, he's voiced by Stephen Graham, who is, uh, you know, from the Guy Ritchie movies, uh, who, who generally plays humorous characters i mean that's kind of his thing uh I, I don't know it's just it's weird it's a weird character because he's supposed to be intimidating i mean like he eventually shows up at the osiris club that's where they first kind of almost cross paths and and like it's just a, a nightmare they're like it looks like event horizon just bodies thrown everywhere yeah. and there's a dude upended on the pool table like it's just it's so over the top gory that it's it's comical like it's it's weird it's just and honestly this is one of my issues with neil marshall as a director neil marshall like a lot of directors of his ilk right the people who came up in the early 2000s struggles with tone like he just doesn't know how to manage tone it just swings wildly from one to the other oftentimes in inside of scenes it swings from humorous and goofy and sort of slapsticky funny to like, Oh, this guy just got his face ripped off. And it's like, and it, you can, you can nudge your, your tone in either direction. Like serious things can have funny moments, funny things can have serious moments, but there has to be an overall. It is this. Right. You have to come then, back to kind of a center at some point. Yeah. Like, what is your movie? Yeah. And I'm very confused on what that center was in a lot of this film. <laughs> I don't know. Is it a horror movie? Is it dark? Is it some sort of like slapsticky, happy-go-lucky adventure superhero movie? Like, it, 
and, and again, maybe this is the, where the studio meddling comes in. Maybe Neil Marshall and David Harbour and the creative team sat down to make a dark, heavy, like, you know, actual, like, you know, deep, dark Hellboy story, right? Hard R, violence, horror, because Neil Marshall's a horror guy. Like, that's most of, the, yeah. most of his successful projects have been horror projects. And then the studio got that cut and they said, but how will this compete with Ant-Man? Right? <laughs> what about Ant-Man? Ant-Man's funny. Marvel's funny. And those make mo- those funny. make those make money. So we must have the funny. And so they go where you you know, if you've got locked picture and you don't have money for reshoots, which I can't imagine they had a ton of money for reshoots on this movie. What do you do? You ADR dialogue. You take your CG character that you can still go back and change the mouth renders on. Or it looks like a pig, so you can't tell what he's saying anyway, so who gives a shit? And and you ADR in jokes, right? You hire Patton Oswald or some <laughs> who the fuck cares comedian to come in and write jokes for you. And you ADR a bunch of lines off screen so that you can have I mean, like I love the I love the cell phone joke too, but that's that's an ADR line. Right. Like yeah. that's it's it's stuff it you can add in later. like it should be in the first movie. Yes. Yeah. Totally. Like if like if that had been made in 2019, like the cell phone joke when Ron Perlman doing that would have fit right in. Right. And every time you say it, I'm like, oh, crap. Right. And it yeah. would have been a joke. And what you do, you do it three times. You get your three laughs. You move on. And so so I'm guessing that that may be what we're seeing here is that honestly, this is them being given a mandate that this is too dark. It's too violent. We're not going to have any of, we're not going to get any of the kids on the Saturday afternoons. And, and so traumatize people. <laughs> right. You monster. You terrible horror mavens. And, and, and so maybe that's part of it. I, I really don't know, but it feels like that. And, and, you know, apart from Marshall's just struggling with tone in general, cause he does. It reminds me a lot of Matthew Vaughn in that way. I think Matthew Vaughn's a better filmmaker than he is, but Vaughn struggles with the same things. Like he really does. Uh, and even like early Danny Boyle had trouble with mm. this. Yeah. Danny Boyle figured it out very quickly and he's fine. <laughs> right. He's fine now. <laughs> but, um, but again, a lot of those like late nineties, early two thousands, dudes especially from the uk because all three of those dudes are from the uk guy Ritchie included they swing wildly from like this is a funny slapstick scene to this is the people getting eaten by pigs scene right it's like what is happening uh and it's it's its own effect i guess uh but whatever but it's just is it is it appropriate for a wannabe blockbuster comic book movie and is it appropriate mm. for this character? No. And I don't I don't really feel like it is. No. And that's my biggest thing is like this movie is fine. And my greatest hope for this film would be that someone sees it and says, man, I really like this Hellboy character. This movie's trash, but I really like this Hellboy character. I want to know more. And then they go and explore Hellboy for reals. Yeah, that would be my greatest hope for a film like this, because and honestly, with that happened with my daughter, she was like, this whole character is really cool. And we had watched the, the Ron Perlman ones, but it had been a long time. So I think we need to revisit those now um, and kind of come back around. 
but I, you know, I, I have them on my reading shelf, right? Like I think six or seven of the, the trade paperback collections. And I was like, here's seed of destruction, give her a read. And, and so she read through it and she came down and she's like, that was really cool. Do you have more? And it's like, here's the chained coffin and other stories. Give it a read. I have so much more. I have so many sites to show you. To show you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Like the pins pop out of my forehead. Um, uh, But so like, and so for me, that's the greatest thing to come out of this, but to wrap it up, basically what, what happens in this battle with Nimue, uh, the Gruagak reassembles her, uh, you know, they, he leaves a way, uh, you know, a trail of destruction. Hellboy eventually gets, and this was another one that was like, I don't know how these pieces are connected. He gets sucked through a magical doorway into the realm of Baba Yaga. Presumably in pursuit of the Gruagak. I guess that's how the Gruagak is moving around. Opening magical portals or something. And he winds up in, in Baba Yaga territory, has a confrontation with her. Baba Yaga looks great. I mean, like the physical the the physical Baba Yaga that they created is is was very good. Yeah, super um, gross. Gross, disgusting. She's eating children. Like they hold nothing back from that mythological tale, which I thought was interesting. And Hellboy does kind of get a one up on her, which was cool. Um, and then they wind up at this tree on a hill because everything has to happen at a tree on a hill, I guess. And and I did love Hellboy's line there, where he says, "I don't think it's going to work out between us because." Uh, like I'm a demon and you're like fucking nuts or something like that was a pretty good line, but that was scripted. That was not 80 yard. Like that was, they filmed that line. Uh, you know, so that got a pretty big laugh. Um, but in essence they're they try to do the unknown Unrama Herald of the apocalypse story and the Hellboy spoilers is descended from King Arthur story together <sighs> at, at the same time. And I don't, I just, again, I, I don't understand why they, they feel the need to like piecemeal all this stuff together. It just doesn't make sense because Nimue wants to start the apocalypse so that the demons from hell can emerge and then they can create a planet where monsters can live in harmony. I, it's like, it's real. It's like I unclear. don't know. Like, I don't see how this benefits you. I don't see how letting this happen is going to like leave Nimue in a better place. You know, like her personal motivations for what she wants to see happen. Don't make a ton of sense. Um, and Okay, so a couple of things. A couple of things. One, I would have liked to see them leave Baba Yaga out of it and do Queen Mab, because Queen Mab was the actual like architect behind a lot of the stuff in the Wild Hunt storyline, if I remember correctly. You know, I think that would have just been a better choice and leave Baba Yaga for like deeper cut lore stuff later. Whatever. Um, but so, so now we get into this whole thing that, and and this does happen later in Hellboy's mythology that it's revealed that he's half human, right? Which is why he's, he's different. He's, his dad was a one of the, the, you know, Lords of hell. And his mom was a human named Sarah Hughes. I think Sarah Hughes sounds right. Um, who ended up just 
as a matter of happenstance, sometimes it happens, uh, was the last living descendant of Mordred, the son of King Arthur and well, the bastard son of King Arthur and his sister, um, or half sister Morgana. Yeah. Okay. So this is kind of like Marvel trying to explain Kang in the most recent Ant-Man movie, <laughs> right? This is a lot. There's a lot of information being thrown. It's like, wait, okay, so this demon guy is a half human son of a demon and the last living descendant of King Arthur. Therefore, he can pull the sword from the stone and wield Excalibur as the new king of England. Okay. That's... <laughs> That's some turns, some twists. It's a lot to dump on a, an audience in your third act, which is where this happens. Like this is all third act material. They meet Merlin played by another son of Brendan Gleeson, Brian Gleeson. So if you're watching this movie and you go like, that sounds a lot like Brendan Gleeson. There are reasons. Um, Again, all this shit. I mean, as a comic book fan and as a mythology fan, Merlin shows up. I'm like, that shit is cool. Excalibur shows up. I'm like, that shit is cool. Hellboy picks it up. It gets set aflame because he's a demon holding Excalibur. That shit is cool. All of that shit's from the comics. I can't complain about it because it's in there. But why is it all being done here? Yeah. Right? Why are we doing all of that here? And it, and all of the things that have come before didn't really set anything up for this. At no. least it doesn't feel like it did. It just feels like, I don't know, it feels like you're just rolling down a hill and now you've reached the bottom and it's like, that was, that was fun. Look but at all. Ow, wow. Look at the adventures we've had. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's just, it all gets piled on. I mean, and then they say that, that Arthur's tomb is just underneath St. Peter's church. It's just there. It's always been there and nobody found it. Uh, it's just, it's, it's real strange. It all gets piled on real fast and then it's resolved even more quickly. Um, the last fight in this is between Hellboy, uh, Daimyo, and the Gruagak. And it's fine. It's a little CG heavy, and it's not good CG. Um, but it's, it's, it's not like too much. You know, it's not like one of those battles where it's just constant cutting and characters getting thrown into the walls and stuff. Like, they, they do a pretty good job with the fight sequencing. It's, it's a nice, you know, bit of combat, I suppose. But then it dead stops so that Alice can, because Broom shows up for, for reasons like why this human would just show up in, in the middle of this fight. I don't know. Um, but he gets killed, right? Broom dies. And then almost immediately Alice channels him and the channeling effect in this movie is disgusting. I do not remember if that's how it was in the comics. It's possible that it is. I really don't remember, but it's like, they come out of Alice, like out of her mouth. And it's they... like ectoplasm. Yeah. That's what it's supposed to. Echo. That's what it's supposed to be, but it just looks but like. But it's like ectoplasm with a face. Yeah. It, it And like weird shoulders. Like it's, <laughs> it's, it's just weird. It just doesn't look good. <laughs> I would have much rather it been like an ethereal thing, right? Which Hellboy, it doesn't do a lot of that. Like Hellboy do, is pretty grounded visually. It doesn't do a lot of weird, um, you know, like. But this just didn't look good. It just it wasn't a good effect, and it was gross, and it sounded gross because it was constantly like, 
you know, as they're like moving around, it's just nasty. It just doesn't sound good. Um, but so broom comes up and then like reminds Hellboy that he doesn't have to be a Nogun Rama, that he can be something better. And I, I, I will be the first to say, and it, the same thing happened when he turned into a Nung Unrama in the original Hellboy. When the horns come out and the little flaming crown is on his head, Hellboy is one of the most badass looking characters in comics. Yeah. And he looks badass in this. Like I said, Harbor has the physicality. Demons are cool. When, when his, <laughs> you know, you mentioned earlier the lack of expressiveness. And like the thing with the Nung Unrama is when he, when that, when the demon perform, when the demon side of Hellboy emerges, he becomes like a statue. Like he is just expressionless. Yeah. And so when Harbor is no longer having to emote with his face and he's just adopting the stony uh, expression, it looks really cool. It looks really good. Like just great. Like pieces of concept art brought to life. Like it just looks incredible. Um, you know, it's unfortunate that the rest of the movie where he has to actually like act and emote and do things can't you know like you can't just design a prosthetic t- for this right like that scene but it looks good um and so but there's this whole thing about him being like tempted to it and Nimue's trying to like get him to marry her so that they can be the new king and queen of england and rule it even though they're gonna unleash hell on the world it's king just and queen of england have bigger goals uh, yeah like who gives a shit right? like <laughs> come on we've moved past it right like and it would have been better if you know alice stood up and was like listen love king and queen of england doesn't mean shit anymore man like who cares um but like you know it just it's too much it's just there's too much here i mean and it's rare that i look at a movie and say you've adapted too much of the source material but in this case that is the problem you have adapted because none of it is adapted very well and I guess that's really it too. Yeah, for sure. You know, if this had been wall to wall references and, and comic book moments and done, uh, rendered as something that's not a mess, then it right. would have been fine. Yeah. But it's it, not it the feels, content. Yeah. It's the it often feels like you have to do one or the other. You can do like a really tightly focused adaptation that pulls in the important parts or you do the faithful adaptation that is chaos. And maybe that's what happened here. Maybe. Right. Yeah. Faithful to a fault to it, to an extent. Right. Um, you know, but I look but then at the this, arrangement of events is still just bizarre. Yeah. And that's, that, I mean, that's really the thing that my second watch through that just made less sense to me is that the, the big bits of this movie that they have to kind of get to, are not strung together in a way that holds up to scrutiny. Like if you think about it for more than five seconds, you'd be like, wait, how did that happen? Why did that happen? How did those characters get there? Um, And that that's just a problem, right? It's it's, it means that either the film was just egregiously chopped up in editing, which is what I suspect probably happened. Or it wasn't, truly thought out super well from the beginning. And it was just, we're picking and choosing stuff that we think is cool. Um, and, and again, ad, ad, adaptation is an endless challenge. There are, there are more wrong answers than right answers when it comes to adaptation. It's a, it's a difficult mix to balance. Uh, we watched Shawshank Redemption not too long ago. And 
that I mean, I, I, I know it's, you know, it's top rated movie on IMDb. I'm not saying anything revolutionary here, but Darabont's skill as an adapter is so on display in the script for that film that it's, it's remarkable that people just don't hire him to do the first pass adaptation on everything, mm. right? Just give him a shot and then take his script and do something else with it because it's, it's just, it's all, it's a nearly perfect script. It's nearly perfect. Like there are a couple moments in the middle where it slows down a bit too much. It spends a bit too much time sort of circling the drain with the warden situation, even though we know he's a piece of shit and we know he's going to get his up his comeuppance. Like we just need to keep going through the, the actual like prison storyline. Um, but it's, it's, it's great. And, and so it's, it's not an easy thing to do. And I admire them for trying to pack in as much as they could. And especially of content that we wouldn't have seen in the other Hellboy films, because again, this movie from a script standpoint makes a ton more sense as Hellboy three than it does as Hellboy, you know, one take two, right? Like it, it makes a lot more sense as a sequel where we'd already have seen him deal with the Ogdu Jihad. We'd already seen him have a baby with Sabrina (laughs) with, (laughs) with Selma Blair, uh, like whatever, like it just makes more sense for that later story, but not as like a rebooted origin story. I I think there are other stories that could have been told to do that or take one of the just sort of random Indiana Jones style one-off MacGuffin hunts and just adapt that and, and sort of hint at some of these darker themes and and ideas, you know, and save that shit for the sequel when the character's established, you know, like that. Uh, so how does it end? Uh, Hellboy cuts off Nimue's head and throws it to hell. Um, we do see a lot of cool flaming Hellboy stuff that looks neat. A couple of, you know, would be apocalypse moments, Hellboy riding dragons and stuff. It's, it's cool. It's neat. It's good stuff. Um, I wish it was in a better movie. Um, and, and then a very weird and feels like a reshoot of the team. Daimyo, Alice, and Hellboy. Uh, what is it? The the Onanon Society, the Oanon Society. I forget the name of the the other secret society in Hellboy. <laughs> there are just so many. Uh, just layering them. The the Oanas Society, but uh, and, and then we get the tease of Abe Sapien, who should have just been in this fucking movie. Um, yeah, I I needed that. It's personally. again it you need that character in Hellboy so that Hellboy doesn't have to do all the talking. Like He's an excellent foil. Yeah. It's a perfect foil for that character. Like Abe can work alone, which in most of the BPRD stories, it's just Abe and a team, you know, including Daimyo in some cases. Um, but Hellboy kind of needs Abe to, to sort things out and say things. Cause Hellboy doesn't always have the words cause he's a teenager. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, they had a couple of post-credit sequences because all movies have post-credit sequences now, I guess. And and they tease Lobster Johnson again, or the ghost of Lobster Johnson, which there are some adventures in, in Hellboy where he goes on some adventures with the ghost of Lobster Johnson, which are fun. Um, and, and it just kind of wraps up. Like, it, I, I don't even really feel like we need to address it because it's just kind of like, yeah, I guess. That's sure. That's the thing that would happen. It, it ends as a comic book movie would. <laughs> yeah and then it was over right 
And uh, and you and you get the sense like watching this, even though I knew that like they weren't going to make another one. I think if I had seen this in the theater, I would have been like, "They're not going to make another one. Of these. They're not going to make another one of these. This it ain't it. happening." Yeah, it's a uh, it, it's <sighs> again. I liked it more on my second viewing, but that's not saying much because I didn't like it at all on my first viewing. Yeah, but I was able to appreciate again. Harbor's performance, most of the performers in this, the strong aspects of the adaptation, some good aspects of the production design. Again, what I think should be happening is that they just forget this movie happened, spool up another smaller, more manageable Hellboy story. Because that's also the thing. It's like this, this is not the story you tell with a $50 million budget in Hellboy. It's too big. There's too much, right? Strip it down, man. You can tell a great Hellboy story in a forest and a castle, right? You don't need anything else. Some broken down castle in the British countryside, a couple of, uh, you know, worn dirt paths and a decent forest. And you can tell a very good Hellboy story. You don't need all of this to get that done. And if coming in, you only had $50 million. I don't know who greenlit this script on $50 million. What producer sat down and read the script and then had to create that fucking Excel spreadsheet with all the line items and said like, this is the story that we're going to make for $50 million. Was there no one who said like, this is a bad idea. Like this is not a good, like this is too much, right? It's the person who read George Lucas's original Star Wars script and said, this is too much, George. You can't do this for the money you have. So take the third of it that makes more sense and just do that. Right? Like, I, again, I, I know they made it in Bulgaria. I know it's cheap there. <laughs> but still, <laughs> like, it's too much, right? It's not like, no, dude, pick a smaller story. So it does give me hope that the next one is pulling from one of those shorter stories. Right. The chained coffin is not uh, or, or the crooked man, excuse me. The crooked man is not a complicated story um, and it is more in the vein of forest castle. Right. Like it's it's very much that although it's uh, the crooked man takes place in Appalachia. It's the Appalachian Mountain story. So that could be fun. Right. Because that's Hellboy in America, which was one of the other things about this. This makes this movie makes Hellboy feel very Eurocentric. Which again, a lot of Hellboy's dalliances are with various European mythologies from you know Russia and, and Czechoslovakia and Transylvania. And, or, I know Transylvania doesn't exist. Hellboy anymore, is but, an international guy. But yeah, like that's the whole thing. He's everywhere, right? And all mythologies are open, <laughs> open for business, right? You know, Egyptian gods, whatever. It doesn't matter. Um, so the Crooked Man, however, is is a much more focused and straightforward story. Um. I have two, two sets of the Crooked Man in comics. I, I <laughs> bought it several times because it's very, it's usually cheap. Crooked Man, you can, uh, you know, all of those who might enjoy hunting for actual comic books, if you're that kind of person like me, um, the Crooked Man is a storyline that you can find in dollar bins. Uh, it is not expensive to get a hold of the Crooked Man, um, and it's just two issues. So, uh, you know, given that it is being adapted, if it does blow up, could be kind of cool to have a copy. I don't know. Um, but in any case, uh, it gives me hope. But my my frustration is that they're not keeping David Harbour because I think they should keep David Harbour 
as the character. I think he's, he's I I good. think he's the best thing about this movie. Like if this movie has a bright spot, it's him. I agreed. I mean, I I can't. If, he's the if most he positive thing to say about this for sure. If he hadn't been in this role, this would have been unwatchable. Oh, that is a really good way to think about it. I hadn't really thought about it in that way, but yeah, if they had just put some rando stunt guy in here, Scott Atkins or something, uh, uh, this this would be an unwatchable disaster. Harbor makes this movie at least semi-watchable. I will, yeah, you're 100% correct. 100% correct. Um, all right, so any, I don't know, we could talk about other things, but I, I hope that people listening to this understand that Hellboy is awesome. Yeah. You should, you should read Hellboy. Um, Hellboy's great. It's a wonderful comic. And Mike Mignola is by far one of my favorite comic book artists of all time. Nobody does it like Mignola. People have tried, people have desperately tried to copy his sort of signature look and style. They can't do it. They can't even come close. It's just the way that he sees the world. That's the way I've, that's the way I've think about it. It's like, this must just be how Mike Mignola sees the world is like this. It's so cool. Um, so Hellboy's great. Guillermo del Toro's Hellboy movies are better than this. Yeah. By a pretty large margin flawed in their own ways, but better than this. But even this with David Harbour's performance and some of the cool ideas that Hellboy just sort of naturally brings along makes it semi watchable but I can't really recommend it. And I guess that's where we're going to come down to. Like there are better Hellboy things out there in the world to consume than this. And two, I'm going to say basically forgotten ones at this point is, is back at the height of Hellboy mania. We could call it that. Um, It it wasn't Hellboy mania. I'm I'm being silly. It was Um, very brief. It it was, was, it was a brief time period, but, but basically in between Hellboy one and Hellboy two, we actually got two straight to DVD animated films. Those were good. Called sword of storms and, um, blood and iron. And, and del Toro was still producer on these. Um, the, the cast from the del Toro films played their parts. John Hurt came back. Ron Perlman, of course, came back. They went ahead and recast Abe Sapien as Doug Jones here, which most people don't know that about the original Niles Crane <laughs> uh, <laughs> was uh, the original Abe Sapien in the first film. But that was a late decision by the studio. Originally, he was meant to be voiced by Doug Jones, the person who did the physical acting. And in Hellboy 2, they just let Doug Jones do the voice. Um, Doug Jones uh, is the most famous creature performer in Hollywood. He, if, if it's a tall, skinny creature, it's, a, it's Doug Jones. He was the Pan and Pan's Labyrinth. All of Guillermo del Toro's movies, he finds parts for him. He was the the fish man in Shape of Water. Doug Jones is awesome, and he's a great Twitter follow. Uh, he he yeah. posts pictures. The one thing I didn't realize, he was, you remember the commercials in the 90s where McDonald's was pushing its late night menu, and they had the man in the moon? Mac Tonight. Mac Tonight. Yeah. Uh, that, that, was Doug, that was Doug Jones. <laughs> Doug Jones was Mac tonight. Um, crazy, crazy career. Um, but they actually made the transition um, to uh, Doug Jones as Ape Sapien in these animated films. And these animated films are great. They yeah. are so good. Um, 
they were planning a third one. It never ended up getting released. I know that they just, I think they just did a couple years ago. I think it was actually meant to coincide with the release of this Hellboy film to try and ride that. They, they did these as ultra HD Blu-rays. So they re-released them in 4k. I don't have that set. Um, I've never been able to find it in the wild and the Amazon prices quickly went out of control. Um, but even in, in, even in lower format, these are great Hellboy stories. So, you know, I would say go and find that stuff, do the Hellboy reading, and then cross your fingers and hope to die that this new Hellboy doesn't suck ass. Um, cause golly, it might. Uh, but, uh, yeah. So not a recommend yeah. for me. I, I'm, I, yeah, I'm, I'm more or less in the same spot where I put it on expecting my family to hate, to not like it and be asked to stop it. And they, they watched the whole thing and enjoyed it. And it did what I hoped it would do, which is inspire, you know, some of my kids to want to know more about Hellboy. So it did do that. And that's not, that's not nothing. Yeah. This, this movie is not, if, if you don't know anything about Hellboy, I, I, maybe this wouldn't be as insulting, but I think yeah. this is a, a case where being a fan of something definitely spoiled this. Right. Yeah. Knowing and loving Hellboy like I do actually made this film worse. Knowing less, coming in with no background in history, just sort of like, what is this? It's a semi-watchable film. Like, there's nothing wrong with it, um, it fundamentally. Apart from some of the, the narrative structuring of it, which which if you're you know not paying close attention could be confusing. But you know, um, Marvel movies are such hot messes in how they get from A to B to C so in the are, plot. <laughs> I think people are just sort of numb to that experience. Maybe, yeah, I, I would and agree with that. So this wouldn't this wouldn't be so bad to watch if you were used to that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, if, if, if your diet is DC and Marvel, uh, universe films, which again, hot messes, all of them makes <laughs> and, me want to claw my eyes out to watch <laughs> movies like this. I can't stand, you know, I'm, I'm waiting for that magic director that is able to, to navigate that universe well enough to craft something truly magical in one of these films. I thought the original Ant-Man got pretty close because it was just so different from the Marvel output at the time. It was funny. And I, but I've realized that I think a lot of what made that original Ant-Man work so well were the pieces left over from Edgar Wright before he left. Cause people forget Edgar Wright was going to make Ant-Man. And then Marvel pissed him off because they wouldn't let him change shit, change shit or do what he wanted. And so he left. But I mean, like when I, when I rewatch the original Ant-Man now and they're falling out of the helicopter and they get trapped in the suitcase and the music gets turned on in the phone and it's the cure. And they're just like fooling around in there and there's all this like cool sound effects stuff because the phone's flying around behind them. I'm like, yeah, Edgar Wright wrote this scene. <laughs> like, this is this is an Edgar Wright scene, and I don't know that. I mean, that Marvel's never been been open about that relationship, and Wright has said that he, he left amicably, like it wasn't bad. But um, 
I don't know, man, like just these, these machine movies that Marvel makes now, I enjoy them. I mean, I'm a comic book fan. So seeing some of my favorite things thrown up on screen makes me happy, but you know, I'm, I understand why people are fatigued by them now. Like it's just so much and it's so much to keep track of, you know, like I've, I've talked to people been like, yeah, I went to see him and that was good, but man, I just, I didn't understand all this stuff with Kang. And then I, and then I have to be like, well, did you watch Loki? And they're like, I have to watch Loki. It's like, well, kinda. If you watch Loki, then it explains who this is and who this is and how this works. And I won't and get into it, but we um, <laughs> yesterday watched the Spider-Man movie with all the Spider-Mans in it. The multiple Spider-Mans, yes. The multiple Spider-Mans. Yep. And I was able to follow it because I I know thing I know shit about fuck when it comes to comic books. Like I don't know everything. Sure. But I can I I know what's going on. Yep. But even still, as soon as we started it, I was like, "Did you watch the other Spider-Man movies?" And he was like, "No." <laughs> do you think do you think that was important? And I was like, "Oh shit." Oh, well, uh, well, maybe. Pause. Let me explain and some it, stuff. Like it was just it was schizophrenic. Like it just felt off the rails full of like references to things that I've never seen. I don't know what happened where they'll just say like, well, you know, the incident with blah, blah, I can't, that can't happen again. And I'm like, what happened with blah, blah, which movie was that? And I didn't see that. You're going to have to clarify that for me there, pal. Oh man. Yeah. Um, So this, I mean, this Hellboy movie feels like it fits in with those. Yeah. Just fine. <laughs> like it hangs yeah, somebody, alongside those comic book movies. Somebody at the studio was like, how can, <laughs> how can we make this Marvel? Right. Used to be yeah. make mine Marvel. Now it's make this Marvel. Um, and, and it definitely feels pulled by those forces. It's sort of irrevocably pulled by those forces. And, and unfortunately the Marvel style has been established as the style. This is what you're trying to do here, guys. And, and the, un, and the reality is, is the, the, the beauty of comic books, the things that makes com- make comic books fun is that they are so unique, right? They're constantly trying different things because it's a format where you can get away with it. But now movies and the way that the MCU has shaped the superhero film and the modern con- consciousness is now forcing them all into that box, which is the exact opposite of what comics should be doing. Comic books should be opening the form. And saying like, let's try and experiment with this. Let's tell some stories over here and try some stuff over here. And, but studios don't work that way. Studios look at a formula and say, this works for you and makes X amount of dollars do that. And so it's, it's this weird thing where possibly one of the most creative storytelling enterprises of the last 70 years is now being used to actively box another creative storytelling type into this very narrow, this is the only thing that works. And boy, is that frustrating. That just sucks. Um, you know, and again, I, I don't, I can't point to the Marvel TV shows and say like, well, there's some creative stuff happening here. She Hulk was pretty creative and fun, but the fandom hated it. Like everybody got pissed about that show. Like this isn't my she Hulk. And I'm like, well, who's she Hulk is it then dude? Really? Like you're that big of a she Hulk fan to read the Dan slot run. 
right? You big Dan Slot, you know, She Hulk guy, or are you more? I don't like know a, who that is, yeah, and like, I'm not gonna find out. Because if you read the Dan Slot She Hulk run, that's pretty much how the show went. Like it was like almost exactly that tone and that quality. Um, aside from the fact that they created She Hulk just because they were afraid NBC was gonna create a female version of the Hulk, like they did for the Six Million Dollar Man. It was literally, it was an emergency meeting where Stan's like, they're going to, they're, they're going to fuck us. We gotta, they just made, that Lindsay Wagner's going to fuck us. They're going to make a She-Hulk. Uh, and so they, they quickie copyright the character and created a dumb backstory for it. Anyway, sorry, side point. So there is creativity happening within the Marvel space, but it's not in the big tent pole stuff. Yeah. Um, well, it just can't. It just can't. can't. My, my last hope, not last hope. I'm not. Gonna, I'm going to go see these movies regardless. I don't give a shit. Hope. The last straw. I'm not. I'm not one of those pundits that's going to say these movies are done. There's definitely fatigue. Like people are. Are there's been a lot in Phase Four of Marvel, but the biggest one for me is if Guardians Three can't stick the landing. That's that's a bad sign, like a real bad sign, because those movies have worked better on a sort of like individuals like the movies themselves work if you've seen the other movies that's good but you don't have to you can watch volume two and kind of get it without really needing to have seen volume one and if three can't kind of pull off that magic trick again i don't know man i mean gun's one of the few that i think can like he's great he's a great film director but i don't know it's it's weird um i guess we'll see and you know, Hellboy isn't really part of that conversation, but if the MCU falls apart, it's going to be a great opportunity for Hellboy to step in and be like, I'm, I'm here guys. I'm cool. Do you want to see some we cool make shit? More, more non-Marvel comic book movies. Right. Cause there are a lot of those. I don't know if people are familiar. There's so much, you know, <laughs> like, you know, I so thought of much. a comic book the other day that I, I, I don't even, I know you have it. Um, cause yeah. I read yours. Do you remember Ruse? Yeah. What a the fucking great from, comic uh, book that was. Like all those cross gen comic books. They were good ideas, man. That the the they they destroyed their own company by being bad at yeah. it, by being just bad bosses. Like just mismanaging shit. Yeah, Ruse was cross there were a couple of cross gen stories um that came out that were pretty good. Ruse was my favorite too. That was a great story. I would love to see that go somewhere. That would be great. Because, uh, man, I don't know. Like, I just, I think about all the great comic books that have come and gone, and I would, I would love to see us explore some of those things rather than just circle just the, dream. the same people, the yeah. same heroes. Yeah, I, I'm with you on that. Uh, I think that would, that may even be a future discussion, dear listener, a list of comic book properties that should be adapted into popular media in the near future. That would be fun. We may, we may do that. That'd be a little break in the format, but I think that might be a good one uh, to uh, flex some of our creative muscles a bit. But yeah. All right. So uh, again, not a recommend from me. Sounds like not a recommend from you either, unless yeah. you just love Hellboy as much as us, which I don't know how many people out there would. Hopefully a few. Um, so if uh, somebody wants to, to uh, find you on the internet and tell you, that their David Harbor fan club is done with you, that they are doxing you. Where can they do that? 
Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Baskinator, where I am usually tweeting about Ron Perlman or David Harbour or nothing at all. Yeah, and you can find me at T Baskin on Twitter as well until it implodes in a violent fire of open source doom at the behest of Elon Musk. But when that happens, I'm going to be sitting here uh, since we've been talking so much about comics. Uh, I, I recently posted this to my Instagram, uh, my just my personal Instagram, but I obtained a copy yesterday of Batman number 28. I saw from, it was the April and May edition from 1945. It is from the month that world war two ended and Wild. by golly, it is not in the best shape. But it is still pretty cool. Um, just to hold something in my hand that is this this book is eight years older than my dad. <laughs> That's really wild. That's nuts. Dude. Like it's a, it's a nuts. piece of history in some way or another. Yeah. Yeah. It's just so sweet. Uh, so cool. Uh, so you can find me on Twitter while I'll probably be posting shit like that all the time, too. Uh, <laughs> because I'm hardcore back into comic books, man. I'm, I'm loving it going through the stuff I've got. Um, I found my original, uh, seed of destruction. Number one, um, the, the first of the ongoing series of Hellboy. Um, and mine and is I, in a box at our parents' house. Uh, yeah, no, I think I have that box right now, actually. <laughs> okay. So I, I've been cataloging for you. Um, but, uh, Yep, so I was able to find that and some other ones. But in any case, it's it's pretty fun. But uh, we will be back in the near future with more discussions of uh, comic book film disasters or other types of movies. Who knows? Um, but there are so back. many disasters in the world. <laughs> so many to talk about and so much fun to be had while doing so. Uh, but we'll be back and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.